Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. David, we know that four legs are good. We know that two legs are better. Does that make three legs best? I don't know. Based on that mathematical calculation, one would think that one leg would be better since half of four is two and half of two is one. Yeah, but it's pretty hard to make the joke about one leg being best uh, and have someone think about someone with a huge dick. <laughs> Fair. Because, Fair. Like unless, I guess, it's someone with no legs. Right. Just a really big dick. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> but that uh, that, I didn't, I didn't, that evokes its own I didn't, <laughs> mental I didn't, image. I don't like that mental image, to be honest. <laughs> so three legs best? I think three legs best, yes. Well, or at least in some sort of ideology. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so today we are doing Animal Farm, the allegory by George Orwell on the Soviet Union and the rise of the Stalin and Trotsky rivalry <laughs> and yeah. his take on it. Well, and uh, I think kind of on an even deeper level, his take on human nature and the nature of power and ideology itself. Exactly. So just looking it up right now, I think it was first published in 1945. It says it in somewhere here. Or the very end of the book, it says November 1943 to February 1944. So I wonder if that's when the book is supposed to like the or the events of the narrative are supposed to be representative of those events in the Soviet Union, Could or be, that's yeah. when it runs. I wish it would just say in here. Hang on, I could have looked this up before we started. Hey, but, yeah. that, but that seems boring. <laughs> but yeah, okay. So his unique political allegory, Animal Farm, was published in 1945. There you go. Okay, so I remember it was August. So like right around the end of World War II, or just after World War II had ended, which obviously. Russia had been an ally of the Allies in that war, and, right. and as I think we've mentioned before, very important in Hitler's downfall. Yes. And so as such, there would have been in the culture at the time kind of a, almost a, a, a softness, especially in the intellectual sphere, for Stalin and the Soviet Union and all of that. And George Orwell, to his eternal credit... <laughs> was like one of the major bulwarks against that. Which is interesting process. considering his own, I suppose, political ideology, which was very socialist. Yeah, well, um, I actually consider Orwell quite a fascinating case study in how to be able to change your mind based on different facts that you come across. And also having own. a nuanced perspective on reality as opposed to an ideological one, which kind of like a... A jersey-wearing approach, which is, well, my team's good just because it's my team. Exactly. He and doesn't say that. He, he's willing to critique everybody. Well, in the two works that he's most famous for, Animal Farm and then obviously 1984, are actually two of his last works. 
or maybe even the last two works. I think he died at the, in 1950. He died right after finishing 1980. Exactly, yeah. And he was a young man. I think he wasn't. He was like 48, maybe, or 49 when he died. Uh, tuberculosis, which is, um, you know, he, so he died like 70 years ago from tuberculosis, which is kind of mind-blowing, except that, you know, we're in the midst of this COVID. Right. That, that arm from the graveyard <laughs> <laughs> grabbing at our ankle, you know, disease, and disease that we just don't know what to do with. But anyway, those, like Animal Farm in 1984 being his last two works, he actually had quite, he was quite a prolific writer before these, but he just wasn't famous. Real. I mean, he probably was famous in people who cared about this kind of stuff, but not internationally famous that those yeah, last he wrote a lot of pamphlets made. he was a journalist yeah well most of his travel blogger he'd only written a few like works of, of fiction before yeah. right like most of it like burmese days is a novel and that was on his take on the on his on on his great disgust with colonialism and imperialism and the british presence in burma because he actually spent a lot of time there in his 20s but a lot of his work was like you know road to wigan pier down and out in london and paris things of this nature, which are, oh, uh, homage to Catalonia, which was his experience in the Spanish Civil War, which was very transformative for him because lost in all of the ideological battles of the first half of the of the 20th century was that Spain had a civil war, yeah, right, in the, in which the, in the, the 1930s. The communists essentially lost. Yes, I, I'm not an expert on like the victor or vanquished of that war. Well, Franco... Who but Franco was, was a fascist, of, was, right? Yes, one yeah. of the very few global leaders that Hitler was actually terrified of at one point. Right. And Hitler's army gained a lot of experience helping Franco, but there was a time where Hitler told Franco he was going to march into Spain, and, and Franco <laughs> responded, I will flow a river of blood to you, the likes of which the world has never seen. And uh, <laughs> Hitler never did. So, so. like the, you say there might be like a, a, a kind of weird meta-stability of power between fascist leaders? <laughs> yeah, there was something. There was something. I don't know. Franco's a scary guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, obviously... No one on this podcast is going to be defending Franco. <laughs> no, no, no. But what was instructive of that era of George Orwell's life was that he had always been a socialist, like a self-identified socialist. In Road to Wigan Pier, you can read about his experiences of going up to like northern England and spending a day with like the coal workers there and walking whatever it was, like the mile underground on hunched legs to get to work and all of that being unpaid. <laughs> right and yes. like, you're not paid until you get there so he um he's got street credit i would say on the working person's experience yes especially in that era right 1930s kind of in between the wars especially right and so what is so fascinating about his experience in the spanish civil war was that he was there to fight with the communists or with the rebels against franco and yet he had to, it, it, this is from memory, this isn't something I've read recently, but in reading about him in Homage to Catalonia and, and his works, he actually had to leave Spain because the communists were coming for him, because he was criticizing some of their methods because they were becoming, as it were, more too much like the fascists. Yeah, in order right? to try to beat the fascists. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. And I think that there was like some influence from the Soviet Union into, obviously, the Spanish communists their biggest ally would be the Soviet Union in that part of the world. Because of all that, both George Orwell and his wife left Spain. And this is um, a really interesting... I think Orwell is maybe my candidate for most interesting intellectual of the 20th century, 
certainly, I would say probably the most interesting political intellectual of the 20th century. And I'm borrowing this from Hitchens. He was the one person who consistently was on what we would now call the more intelligent or right side of fascism, colonialism, and communism. Like he had the most nuanced, intelligent perspective on all three of those factions, right? And a lot of people maybe got two out of those three right, but he was on the right side of all three, right? He was anti-colonial. He wrote very viciously against the excesses and perversions and atrocities of the British, especially in like Burma and that part of the world, India too. He was obviously, and not too difficultly against fascism. That yes, wasn't yep. that was one a lot of people got okay. But he was also anti-communist and more specifically anti-Stalin. 20 years, 25 years before the Gulag Archipelago came out, he was talking about things that would would have been happening in the Soviet Union behind the Iron Curtain that no one would have known about. But he just predicted it. So Animal Farm itself being an allegory for what was going on in the Soviet Union was purely predictive on what he knew about human nature and what he'd seen in the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. Which is fascinating kind of thing, right? Well, yeah, it just goes to show you that if you have a, a good enough understanding of human psychology, it's not nearly as hard to predict sociological trends as people might think. Exactly. Because he understands that ideology is simply a tool in the pursuit of power and not a realistic understanding of the world. Mm. And the interesting thing, I think, about this book, and we'll get into it, is that ideology changes to suit those in power (laughs) and those who, uh, you know, it's so funny that the sheep are the ones that are used to drown out all the other animals, drown out any dissent with, like, slogans. Well, that's certainly intentional, just like every 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 sentence of this book. Every single sentence of this book is incredibly well-crafted and intentional. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad you bring up that point, too, because in... This is, you know, tangential, but in 1984, it's really interesting. And I think this is probably Orwell's great insight into totalitarian thinking is that there's kind of this idea in a lot of movements that some sort of brutality is a means to an end, right? The whole concept of you gotta can't make an omelet without cracking a few eggs. Now, again, never mind that human beings aren't eggs. There's a great scene in 1984 between O'Brien and Winston. I can't remember it verbatim, but the gist of it is O'Brien kind of is correcting Winston's false take on this. He's like, well, you misunderstand the party's stance. The point of torture isn't to improve you. The point of torture is torture. Yeah. The point of power isn't to make you understand a better world. The point of power is power. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Like everything that we, the party, are doing is not for something better. It's which, for yeah, its we're own not sake. actually pursuing an ideology, which means... <laughs> that we're not hypocrites yeah. because you're just misunderstanding our motivations. We're actually just we're just interested in dominating your psyche. Yeah. That's the entirety of our goal and this is how we're doing it. <laughs> and it's just O'Brien in 1984 being such a wickedly intelligent person, it's just so chilling. Yes. Right? So Yes. Anyway, I, as you can tell, I'm a big fan of George Orwell. I think he's one of the great luminaries in human history, actually. I think his works should be required reading for every 15-year-old. <laughs> yes, yes. But that notwithstanding, before we launch into this, there's another little thing I wanted to bring up with you because I think it's an interesting analog to Orwell himself is that today is Canada Day. We're recording on July 1st. And as such, I've been thinking a little bit about like, okay, well, what are 
what is what is it to be Canadian, right? Like, what is it to be patriotic but not nationalistic? What is it to be proud of Canada without being what would be the word hegemonic about Canada or or uh, or even prideful, like, you know, or having a superior a superiority complex or mm-hmm. something? And to me, it is really someone like Orwell who inspires my thoughts on these kind of things, where it's like, as you know, I. It might not always be easy to tell. <laughs> I'm I'm not an explicitly political person. I think you would know this about me. I I actually find politics to be downstream of the more interesting conversations to be had about the human experience, like literature and philosophy and psychology. But to the extent that I am a political person, I never have really considered myself to be a conservative. Right? The evidence of this is that. I've never actually voted for a mainstream conservative party in any election in my adult life. I have voted for mainstream liberal parties in Canada, but I wouldn't even say I've done that more often than I've just voted for <laughs> some fringe party right, that, right. that I was more settled on my conscience to, to vote for, right? And yet I'm still full, pulled by this idea of patriotism. And I think that that's kind of what Orwell would have been like too. You know, like he, he was no fan of the aristocracy of England, he was no fan of the colonial nature of the, of the British Empire. But essentially, a lot of the things he defends in both Animal Farm and 1984, the backbone of them grew out of a philosophical tradition that mostly came from the British Isles. Yeah. Right? Well, so arguably parliamentary democracy and even, I would say, our understanding of democracy itself. I mean... The French would argue it came from them, and well, Canada is uh, a bit of a hybrid, in that and that's sense. the interesting thing is that Canada is a hybrid between the French, the American, and the British ideals, attempting to take what's best from all of them. Whether we've actually accomplished that or not, I guess history will tell us. But yeah, I think what is Canada? I guess is the question you're asking yourself. Well, in one I mean, sense, people vote with their what's that term? They vote with their footprints. They vote with their feet. With the vote, yeah, not the footprint. They vote with their feet, right? Like the immigration into Canada is a lot higher than the people leaving the country, yes. right? People want to live here. Yeah. yeah. Now, I think this is worth a meditation for a second on a episode we're doing that is explicitly allegorically political and political philosophy, which is why I think it's so interesting, and yet weaves narrative in to make it not as ego driven. Well, and that's more meditation. The, in- the interesting part is it it makes you feel mm-hmm. it's a story that makes you feel you feel the the revolutionary fervor of the animals who are being oppressed and then you feel their future oppression right. so much more acutely uh, probably a totally uh, that's a that's a whole other way i feel akin to orwell is that he he knew because he did it this way he knew that well his two greatest works are fiction Yes. <laughs> and, yes. Right? Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, it's interesting that we're doing an allegory because an allegory is a, essentially a a nod to the real to the world power of analog. fiction, right? Mm-hmm. To and saying, well, it's this is really true fiction, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and I just think um, Orwell was probably one of, if not the master of doing this while not slapping it in your face mm-hmm. to the degree that... Uh, I mean, a lot of people think that Animal Farm is a little too on the nose. I don't think so. I think he's being very thoughtful in his mm. criticisms. Yeah, I think when we get to parts of it where it might be on the nose, as it were, <laughs> yeah, we right. should like 
point out why we don't think that. Okay, yes. But just like to resolve this Canadian thought, which I apologize if it's a bit rambling, but here, I'll, I'll try to encapsulate it in this, ane- in this anecdote. So today being Canada Day, I was a little bit before we started recording, I was outside playing guitar and a couple doors down, there's a family who lives there and they have a daughter who is like eight or nine years old and she is, one of her parents is white and the other is Filipino, I think. Um, so she's biracial and, you know, she comes out wearing a Canada t-shirt with, you know, a big Canadian flag on it. And her mom, who is Filipino, comes out and they just say hi to me. And they're, you know, they wish me a happy Canada day and they go on their merry way. And it's like, to me, that that's just so perfectly encapsulates what it is to be Canadian, which is like living peacefully with your neighbors, no matter where they're from, understanding that joy and happiness i mean this little girl was skipping around and singing and being so happy that it was canada day because it's lots of fun and there's gonna be fireworks and you know there's like cake and all this kind of stuff yep and she is not like this 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 young person she's not someone who would have looked like the canadian population at confederation (laughs) Right. right right but it's just as much her day as anyone else's in this country you know and I, I guess there's something of that ethos that I feel so sad about because it gets lost when we start focusing politically on much more superficial qualities about each other. And one of the aspects of Animal Farm is that there's so much emphasis on very superficial things that can't be proved or disproved. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And to the extent that Canada does anything well, and it has done things very poorly in the past because of superficial qualities of people, the residential schools being maybe the most obvious case. It has the capacity to be better than that. You know what I mean? Well, it is better. Yeah. And I know that we probably have a lot of maybe right of center listeners who maybe at this point in time are looking askance on some of the things in the news. And I just would want all of them, I guess... everyone, but them especially to know that in my mind, and I hope maybe I can demonstrate that a bit in this episode, is that to me, there's no necessary distinction between a liberal person and a patriot. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, I really believe that because I consider myself a very liberal person. And I also consider myself a patriot of this country that I love. And I don't think that there's any philosophical or psychological disconnect there. And those who would say different or pull in a different direction, I think are worth dissecting on our part (laughs) well i think there probably will be a a dissection right i think it's interesting because i agree but i think it's used by perhaps some liberal-minded people Mm. to divide in fact that commitment to what you described of the little girl one of my favorite um well one of my close friends merlin is his name, and he lives in Ottawa, and he so he he immigrated from China, mm. and he married someone whose parents immigrated from Holland, right? And they adopted a little black boy from Africa, from South Africa. <laughs> What's a more so Canadian family? You than couldn't that? have a more Canadian family than that, <laughs> and I think that is uh, one of my favorite examples of what a great country we live in. In that you can have a family of three different, let, let's call them racial groups, right? living in in love and harmony with one another. Mm -hmm. But that's not how this is being used right now. It's the idea of harmony is not the idea that's being promoted so much as the idea of tolerance. 
And I think yeah. I've talked before. I think tolerance is a low and horrible virtue. Well, <laughs> and the reason it's low and horrible is because it assumes you kind of hate the other person. Well, it's going to be impossible for us to talk about Animal Farm and not talk about the ambiguity of language used for power. Yes, <laughs> and and so. I think maybe the frustration that you expressed that maybe some of our right of center listeners are feeling is not a disagreement on superficial things, but rather a realization that superficial things are being used to divide us right. in order to have power. Well, I guess I would hope to convince or at least make a good case towards those people that that is not the same thing as liberalism. No, I th- and I think right? and I, I think and, I, and right. like I think about it in the way like to me I feel I'm more in the tradition of John Stuart Mill, Adam Smith, maybe modern like I really like Adam Gopnik's book A Thousand Small Sanities, Thomas Paine. You know these these people were like I read Edmund Burke and I read maybe G or I haven't read a lot but I've heard a lot like I know a lot of quotes from G G K Chesterton and I can see where they're coming from but I don't quite agree with all of their analysis about everything which in that sense makes me feel like I can't really be considered a conservative <laughs> at least right. by any nominal comprehensible right. nominal sense there's just problems of demarcation <laughs> again that well, are language probably problems makes of identity too right yeah. is is when you craft an identity around an ideology and this is a problem for conservatives as much as it's a problem for liberals, as much as it's a problem for for self-proclaimed socialists, mm-hmm. is that as soon as you begin crafting an identity around an ideology, then any attack on that ideology becomes personal because right. it's part of your identity. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as that occurs, you're in a very problematic situation of feeling personal affront for uh, for a disagreement well sure and i mean one of the hallmarks of an ideology i mean there's probably more than this but i think one thing you can really notice is that if its primary interest is in changing other people versus themselves yes right and that's maybe what you mean by liberalism and i can agree with that but i don't think the liberalism you're describing is an ideology in the same way i call it a philosophy like and i think that those are different i think philosophy is at least primarily interested in the self in terms of like what's going on in my own head, what's going on in my own life, what's going and how do I improve there first? Yeah. And ideology is primarily interested in what's going on in your head, what's going on in your life and how do I, and how do I take care of that first? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Right. There's something kind of reflexively non self aware about it or like you can't really apply it to yourself because you would lose some of the fervor because then you start noticing some of your own hypocrisies. Yes, exactly. Right now, interestingly in animal farming, we'll get to this. The leadership group is the cynical one that doesn't actually care about that. Or, or the, the leadership group is the one who does know about that and doesn't care. I think it's almost always the case. <laughs> right. So just to put a, maybe a lid on this thought before we get into the book is that I'm interested as someone, I would say, Again, I don't emphasize my political stance in the world, but I probably am more politically centrist than conservative and maybe even, uh, don't tell anyone, a little left-leaning. But to me, it falls on someone like my shoulders then to demarcate, well, where, what's the difference between what I'm talking about and what, when does leftist politics go too far, right? Right. And I think why I want to bring this back to Orwell as a, as a, a Promethean of mine. I like the term Promethean more than hero because hero connotes worship. Yes. And Prometheus just connotes inspiration. Is that George Orwell was a dyed in the wool, self proclaimed socialist. So he was probably even ideologically more left wing than I am. Oh, I would think. And for he sure. has written the greatest book against communism. 
Yeah. <laughs> right? Like there's something so inspiring to me about that. It's like, okay, well, so as someone like me who knows liberal philosophy, who's read John Stuart Mill, who knows the on liberty through and through pretty well, it does fall on someone like my shoulders to point out the excesses of ideologies on the left side of the spectrum, right? Yeah. And so that's I mean, if part we can't critique our, our own biases, then are we really self-aware? Are we are we actually being reflective or are we just being a mirror of someone else's right. thought? Because it's clear to me that patriotism is not partisanship. It's not the same thing. Uh, and there's like lots of philosophy behind this that, you know, I won't bore listeners with now, but basically like you don't have to think Canada is a good idea. You don't have to be conservative to think Canada is a good idea. No. <laughs> right? And you don't even have to be you don't even have to be liberal to think we're doing some things poorly. <laughs> right. Right? Like, right. The, these are non sequiturs that someone like Orwell cuts through, like a hot knife through butter, by getting to the heart and bedrock of what he's talking about. Right? So I just feel like on a Canada Day, in a year that hasn't been easy, not just for Canada, but for the world, I'm excited to talk about freedom and liberty. Yeah. I right? like that. So anyway, there's a number of characters in Animal Farm. The pigs are probably the central characters or the ones who have all the power anyway. And at the beginning, there is Major, who I think... He only is in there for like Yeah, the first to me, he was, um, he was the, you know, analog of Marx. Yes. Or maybe even Lenin. Or maybe a, um, a hybrid of the two, right? Because he was the inspiration. He's the one who gets them all excited about the revolution. Could, right? I don't think it could really be Lenin because Lenin actually succeeded to some degree, right? Like he, well, he led the revolution. I think so. it. Uh, the only kind of nod and wink to it being Lenin, I think, that Orwell made is that um, they have, yes, they have his a skull entombed. on yeah, display yeah. for a long time. So he's they, a mix. I and agree. they had Lenin, what, what would we do there, Jim? Exhumed? Yeah, like on, yeah. In his body on display I think for a he long still time. Is almost, I oh, think. really? I'm pretty sure. Oh. Well, anyway, that was the only part. But more predominantly like the philosophical inspiration so he's much more like marx and then there's napoleon and snowball and napoleon is representative of stalin and snowball is representative of trotsky the two great kind of next generation leaders of the soviet union in i guess it would have been like the 30s and the 40s probably right because i think stalin died in 53 so it would have been before that yeah and then there are the dogs who are kind of the muscle. Probably the KGB, essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. There are the sheep, as you mentioned, which would be probably the mass populace who are just parroting whatever the leadership says. They're the two horses, Clover and Boxer, who to me I thought were really interesting because they are like literally the workhorses, right? Like these are the people who remember how hard it was in the old time and are really inspired by the revolution and work hard and put a lot of the work in and then at the end get no thanks right <laughs> like yeah, they're, the, they're, they're like in a sense the boxer and the clover characters i would say are the most betrayed members of the farm for sure right because they're the ones who gave the most of their blood sweat and tears and then at the end boxers just like sent <laughs> to the glue factory yeah exactly right um, there's Benjamin the donkey, who I actually see as Orwell himself, the kind of like uh, curmudgeonly old guy who works hard but understands there's a tragedy in life, and no matter how glorious the revolution, it's probably going to 
hurt again somewhere to like steel yourself against it and just kind of work hard for your friends. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. There's Moses the Raven, who's only in the beginning and the end of the book, who he is... He represents religion. Exactly, right? And it's interesting because religion was obviously a huge part of the Russian national character and previous a, to yeah, the Soviet Union. it was Union. eliminated for a while, and then obviously it's and then come Stalin back in full force. Yeah, well, and even I believe Stalin brought it back when he realized it would be a good way to kind of control people again. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Moses is always talking about the sugar candy mountain up in the sky for when they die. And then there are, like, there's the rats. And then there's the birds who I think just, the birds represent kind of like the kind of common person who isn't too ideological, but doesn't, isn't really smart enough to combat it. Yeah, they're the ones that kind of have a hard go of it. They have to kind of give up so much more than almost all the other animals, i.e. they're laying eggs all the time, which is they're young, and they can barely replenish themselves when initially they were told they were never going to have to give up their eggs again. So they're they're really the ones that lose the most, maybe materialistically and personally. And then they're also the ones that are killed the most. Right. And then are there any other animals that I'm not really remembering? There's the cat, I guess, who's kind of not really interested in anything going on in the farm. So I don't really know what kind of person that would represent in the soviet union well there's molly the, the oh the and molly the st- yeah who uh who eventually leaves is, is still addicted to the good life yes <laughs> and i guess she would kind of represent the aristocracy yeah I think, to exactly some yeah. yeah and and the um the spoilages and wastages of the aristocracy yeah which is part of and why the obsessions with trivialities yeah and which pleasures. is part of why the revolution seems coherent for the animals in the first place right yes Oh, and Squealer the pig, who's kind of like the propagandist yes. for Napoleon eventually. And then Mr. Jones, who is the human on the farm who they revolt against, who would be representative, I guess, of Nicholas the Tsar, yeah. who was ultimately the victim of the power game in the 1917 uh, revolution. And those are all like the characters. And then and there's the two other farmers who are right. on either side of the animal farm. Who are spo- like... Frederick to- and... Pilkington. Pilkington. And I guess they represent other world leaders. I would think they would represent other nations. Yes, right? yeah, that makes sense. Like, I think one is supposed to be Russia and... Or sorry, one is supposed to be China and one is supposed to be America. Well, or maybe one of them Germany, too. Because, That's very possible, yes, actually. Stalin and Hitler had an alliance. Right. While. And then they were the enemy. <laughs> yes, true. Russia destroyed that's actually, Germany. That's a way so. better way of putting it. So probably like the United States slash Britain. Right. And Germany. Yeah. Yes. And so this book is fantastic. It's so, in- I don't even like to use the word intentional because that's been so corporatized in corporate language. But um, this book is so on purpose. And yet it's very short. It's only like 90 pages. It's almost a tract. Yeah, yeah. Base, yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a novella. It's in the era of the pamphlet, right? Yeah. Well, he was a pamphlet writer. Mm-hmm. So. so we could not encourage you more to go read this book. It's so good. But I think since you read it today, do you want to do the plot rundown? Yeah. So, I mean, essentially the beginning we're introduced to the various kinds of animals on the farm in this almost uh, rally-like moment where kind of a vision is presented to the animals of a, of a better life, of a, of a utopia. From the major. By major, who is kind of the prophet or the dreamer of how do we right the wrongs of the world? And he essentially says that the wrong in the world is man. And that if we can get rid of man, animals can be happy. And then he, of course, dies. So he's kind of a, 
he's a, a shining light, mm-hmm. a the, sage, the, a sage, for whom... wise man or wise pig who's kind of guiding, yeah. who who is the spark of the idea that is codified by Snowball and by Napoleon, uh, who then come along and keep kind of they're kind of they do the hard work of revolution in the sense that they're the ones who have to like convince everyone of the righteousness of their ideology explain away the fears and maybe trepidation of of the animals who who don't want to rebel because they 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 think what if it could get worse or you know or have pre-existing loyalties to uh, mr jones or see him as the one in charge and therefore just are obedient based on mere position but eventually through a series of it seems neglect on the part of of mr jones which is an interesting commentary on the russian aristocracy i think (laughs) it's very easy for the animals to take over and pigs being the smartest of the animals take on the managerial class role that then proceeds to slowly become a tyranny of a bureaucracy it seems while the animals are subsisting especially boxer but most of the animals are subsisting off this idea of common ownership and this you know at least we don't have to slave away for masters but the the great lie and perhaps the great tragedy obviously being that as time progresses the pigs work the animals harder and give them less because they know that they're able to continue convincing them that their life is better and that what they really don't want is to return to a time where they were slaves, which is what they've been convinced that they were. And in reality, they're being worked harder and living worse than they were before. But because of how Squealer, who's the propagandist, uh, portrays things after... Okay, sorry. So after the revolution... Snowball and uh, and Napoleon are often in argument about how things should be done, mm-hmm. and um, Snowball seems to be the visionary, the the man who truly desires to see the life bettered for the animals, and knows it is going to be hard work, but is willing to work beside them, and he, he's the true believer. Yeah, and he's um, the visionary, like he's the one who says we can make it better, we can build the windmill. Um, yeah, he's also there in the fighting too, because yes. when Jones comes back, he leads the charge at the he's battle. A true, of the he's a true leader, yeah. right? Like he uh, he cares about the people or the animals. He wants life to be better, and he actually believes in the vision of what this, you know, e- all animals are equal should look like. Uh, whereas we see in Napoleon a pragmatist whose only interest is not ideological, but power. And how does he obtain power? Well, eventually, in his arguments with Snowball, he doesn't feel like he needs to convince people anymore. He uses the oldest trick in the book, force. Hmm. Loyal, vicious animals that are willing to commit um, acts of violence solely on his behalf that are not ideological, that Mm -hmm. are loyal only to him, and he makes sure that they're loyal only to him. And then he proceeds to very quickly take over the farm, uh, making life increasingly better for himself and uh, and, and certain pigs, certain pigs, not all the pigs. And then eventually, I mean, the conclusion, uh, because this is really that's the whole plot. The conclusion is that there's that the animals realize near the end that there's no distinguishable difference mm-hmm. between humans and the pigs. Well, essentially, at the end of the book, the pigs are just kind of like pure hedonists 
yeah. right? Which is um, reminiscent of what the Soviet leadership group kind of became, right? Like, yeah, so there, while... there's, there's some debauchery that started going on at the and top I, levels of the Politburo. And I think there's a particular uh, a nod to the fact that there was almost a... Uh, an admiration from certain other world leaders towards the Soviet leaders because they were able to make their people work for so much less mm-hmm. and to have so much less, but to continue subsisting off of this idea that they were somehow superior right. based purely on pro- propaganda. Yeah. Like their lives were measurably worse if they'd been able to see it, but because mm-hmm. information was only was completely contro- is completely controlled in Animal Farm by Squealer, and his surrogates mm-hmm. backed up by the violence of these dogs. Yeah. They don't actually know they're they don't know that things are worse. <laughs> right? They Or if they start to think about it how it's changed, it becomes dangerous for them to voice that. Yes. Right? Cuz exactly. there's a as it were there's a party line on this as opposed to what was the case, it's what must be the case. Exactly. And so, yeah, there's so much for us to get into there. It's not a complicated book at all. It's not a complicated right? story. It's very like 10 simple. chapters, very straightforward. 97 pages, yeah. um, or at least the version that we read is. Taking a super complex philosophy, ideology, thought process, social movement, sociological movement to society and making it very, like the genius of Orwell is his simplicity, I think. Well, who was, I think Einstein said, if you can't explain it to a child, you don't understand it. And I think what Orwell proves is that he really understands Mm -hmm. what happened. And this is his, you know, this is is his magnum opus. It's actually better than 1984, in my opinion. And the reason it's better isn't because it's more thoughtful. It's because it's more understandable. Yes. And I would say uh, Animal Farm being a direct correlate to an actual country and government of the time makes it maybe a little bit more imperative. 1984 is a much, it's a more philosophical journey into what totalitarianism would look like on any planet. And for the individual. Yeah, versus, and a psychological dive into Winston, much, and O'Brien, much more than, oh, here's, like, in 1984, Oceania isn't exactly any place in the world right now, except maybe North Korea. That'd probably be the closest. But it's not like you can point and say, oh, these line up pretty well, right? But right. Animal Farm, almost every single thing that the pigs do lined up with something the leadership group of the Soviet Union was doing. So I think it's, in that sense, it's more imperative, right? Right. And we will definitely get into the use of language because that's probably Orwell's, one of his lasting philosophical impacts is um, the use of the English language. Yes. So starting with the major. Okay, so... What I think is really interesting about Major slash Karl Marx is that even though I don't fundamentally agree with the solution, I do think both Major and Marx noticed a real problem. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Oh, 100%. Yeah, like there was certainly a problem with capitalist exploitation of the working man in, you know, whenever it was like 1870 or something like that, whenever... Um, the communist I mean, even even out. Dickens is very you know right. critical of right. this. I think there was, I mean, whole movements, and I mean, this is the moral argument of the socialists, right. right? Is that given no regulation or rules, mm-hmm. um, the greed will run roughshod over 
humanity mm-hmm. and dignity won't matter anymore. And the only thing that will matter is profit and human life is expendable right. by, by people who are, I mean, but it's interesting because it isn't cap, that isn't a capitalism problem. This is something you said in our true detective right. podcast. I think it's important to bring up is religion. Isn't the problem. Capitalism isn't the problem. We are the problem. Yeah. Or, or at least like an element of what we're doing. Well, like human humans, the battle, you know, that rages in each of us, mm-hmm between let's call it the dark and the light between the desire to manipulate others for personal benefit Mm -hmm. and the desire to improve oneself and, and limit the desires that, that run roughshod over our psyches and to kind of approach a stoicism towards life Mm -hmm. as opposed to a a ravenous identity driven consumption of reality. Mm -hmm. That's the war. Right. And, when we look at the great leaders versus the bad leaders, when we look at the, you know, uh, let's call them the Prometheans versus the um, narcissists, Mm. we're always left with the same conclusion, I think, which is that the problem, if if we say that the problem is outside of us, then we we are placing blame in the wrong area. Well, and I mean, and this is a point I want to return to at, uh, in this episode more, but it, it doesn't even solve the real problem that's there in the first place. Exactly. <laughs> right? Which, so- is, which is part of the tragedy of all of this. I'm not like, part of the tragedy of Marxism slash communism slash the Soviet Union is that, I mean, there's a lot of tragedy there, but did it make people's lives better? No, it, <laughs> no, it, 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 it <laughs> measurably was- <laughs> made a lot of like, people's like, lives look, worse. I am not saying... Pre-1917, Russian peasants' lives were good. No. <laughs> right? Like, no. clearly, uh, the aristocracy and the czar had problems that were... <laughs> they weren't reaping the negative effects of. It was, like, no. the population of that country, right? I believe it was, like, a few years before that, the whole Rasputin fiasco <laughs> in, yeah. in, in, in the Russian, you know, courts, I guess. And same on Animal Farm. Like, the animals weren't... They weren't being fed. They didn't have a good life under Jones, right? So this is what I think is... I want to make sure that this point never gets lost when you are retrospectively judging like a movement or an ideology is that there's a real problem there in the first place, right? Well, like Marx didn't invent a problem that didn't exist at all. Major didn't invent a problem on the farm that didn't exist there at all. It's a kind of almost the rapturousness that that you got about distracts and provides smoke and mirrors to actual practical pragmatic ways of solving the problem that is real and found in the first place right yeah well and 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 uh, we've talked about this a lot but it's the problem is well diagnosed by marx i think it's very absolutely well diagnosed. in yeah. fact i think his diagnosis was was dead on the utopian solution is where he he goes off the rails right human life like we've talked about this before but but until you have a understanding that human life is not meant to be without suffering mm. that but that part of let's say that a philosophy versus an ideology a philosophy is acceptance mm-hmm. an ideology is revolution right an ideology says no we can bring heaven to earth <laughs> a philosophy says yeah. we can bring ourselves into heaven sure Right. Yes. Or at least farther away from hell. <laughs> right. You know, but like we we can transcend ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, this is why I love Orwell because he's so good 
at, I think, tipping his hat to something that something he disagrees with does right. And then in very kind of, what would you say, narrative flourish or artistic or, or authorial flourish, he makes, he notices what I also think is to be mm, the greatest weakness of Marxism and animalism on the farm from the get-go. And it's this great line, as the major is saying that man is the only enemy, the dogs are chasing the rats. Yeah. Right? So yeah. one group of the animals is antagonizing and attempting to hurt another group of the animals while the visionary is saying man is the only enemy. Well, right? and, the, and the cat trying to convince, you know, <laughs> the birds that all of the, uh, that, you know, all animals are friends now and that the birds can come sit in his paw. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah, that's a funny aspect of it. And I mean, the analog in Marxism would be that Marx, Marx, I think, he he clearly found a real problem in an econ- in an economical problem <laughs> like mm-hmm. clearly but that was a problem embedded in many other problems that he either didn't give enough i mean i'm not a marx scholar so i don't know for sure but it seems to me like he didn't give enough credence to the other things that might get in the way of the revolution not just the bourgeoisie right yeah. which would be things like factions like well okay is the working class really a monolith or are well, there, this is why Animal Farm is genius, right? I, I would mention this at the outset as part of the genius of Animal Farm. I mean, obviously the analogy is everyone in Animal Farm is, a, there's a there's a human <laughs> analog, right? Yes, they're right. just different kinds of people in the world. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that's represented well by just having different animals. Like it's easier to see. It's like, oh yeah, of course dogs are different than rats, which are different than cats, which are different than ducks, which are different than sheep, which are different than pigs, which are different than horses, right? But all of these temperaments are actually just different kinds of people. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And what Orwell is pointing out early in this book is that you could still take away Jones and we would have problems on this farm. Yeah. And that's obvious to anyone who isn't kind of blinded by their vision. And you could take away the pigs and have even more problems. One of the things that isn't talked about enough in a world that wants to paint everything as black and white, good and evil, right and wrong, right. is that why is Major's vision so compelling? Because it's true. Mm. Why is Marx's vision so compelling? Because it's true. Mm-hmm. Like, he's right. There's abuses. He's right in his diagnosis. He, he understands the disease better than most. Right. What he fails to comprehend is that the disease isn't actually a disease. Mm. It's a symptom. Sure. And there's lots of other symptoms. Yes. Right? That he's ignoring. Yeah. So in the Soviet Union, who are the dogs that chase the rats? Right? Like, obviously, I mean, look at our analogs in Canada. Like, you can get fights going at the bar just between Flames and Oilers fans. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, but you could have someone whose job, it, they're both blue collar. They're both making yeah, the like 60,000. Like, yeah. they're the exact same. They're both working class. So in a Marxist framework, these are people who will be heavily united. Now, again, Marx's answer to that would be something like, well, the bourgeoisie have made sports so that, yes. the, yeah. that the working class can go fight. Well, fair enough. However, there have been societies that have come to power and eliminated, quote unquote, the bourgeoisie. Did all of those people get along? Well, no. no. <laughs> right? Like, there's still the element. This is, this is, to me, Mark's great failure in his diagnosis is that, you know, we've used this term, what you say is true, but it's not quite true enough. Right? Or it's right, but it's not right enough. Marx was right about the economic part or at least partially right about the economic part but he kind of made that the whole thing as opposed to like well what about 
religion? And what about people's different temperaments, right? Like it just feels like all of the other elements of human psychology are missing. <laughs> in well, that's talking the, that's about the this. problem with ideology. It um, it actually simplifies reality. It says, well, actually, this is the problem, right? And and none of nothing, none of the other problems mm-hmm. can have the light of day because this is the real problem. Mm-hmm. And once we solve this problem, that's how we get to utopia. Mm-hmm. It is a religion. It's the <laughs> same thing. Yeah, it's it's a system of thought that simplifies reality to, to a set of principles. And that set of principles then becomes the defining filter through which you filter reality, yeah. therefore having confirmation bias take over everything. Every- and there's no difference mm-hmm. between those two things. Yeah, and, and so, I mean... And, and, and to your point on economics, I'm not sure that, I, that he... I mean, his diagnosis of the problems of capitalism are correct, but I think his solution... Is even more disastrous. Well, of course. Um, like <laughs> but, his economic solution is what I'm saying. His economic solution is more disastrous. Yeah, and I guess I would just add on to that because I think you're right. Is that one of the main reasons I think it is most disastrous is because he was a little bit too blasé or even non-committal about all the other elements of human nature, like incentives. Right. He. I mean, even Orwell, I think, is a little bit. Uh, I mean, he. He. he lays out the problem as well, but because he's a socialist, this is my, maybe my big disagreement with Orwell on just a, let's say, on my perception of how economic reality operates, is he's like, well, the animals were working really well, and in fact, they were more efficient than they'd ever been. Right. They were more efficient than, they, than the humans could be. Mm-hmm. Okay, and he, and he describes this, right? He describes the harvest mm-hmm. and how the birds were able to pick up bushels of grain more than they would have been able to get just by picking it up off the ground Mm -hmm. which humans would never do right and he said and the humans didn't steal there was no stealing well we know that in soviet russia there was a huge black market (laughs) criminality thrived (laughs) yeah and it's a complete misunderstanding of human nature to think that people will come together well i think part of that too is that maybe um Orwell just didn't have quite as thorough a knowledge of the inner workings of the Soviet Union. And or, he just didn't quite or I think of, of, or in this case, I think of human nature. Mm, maybe, yeah, probably. But, but all, I mean, we all have blind spots. But, all, but also, the setup of the farm in the first place is a little artificial in comparison to the Soviet Union. I mean, maybe less than other places, but obviously going into it, our intuitions are already that humans own animals anyway. Right. Like we don't yeah. actually have yeah. a kind of, visceral resistance to the idea of owning of having animals as property as opposed to like well is it exactly right to say that the czar saw all of the russian people as such property maybe probably more than other regimes in the past which is why the diagnosis of needing to get rid of it seemed more of an imperative right it'd be very different if for some reason mr jones incentivized through meritocracy his animals on his yes, farm yeah. right like that would be a different kind of which i don't know maybe that le- lends itself to an interesting kind of thought experiment of like well what kind of existing regimes are vulnerable to a communist takeover or revolution in the first place well and right? i think you look at the places where communism thrived as opposed to where it didn't it was places where 
things were already really terrible. Sure, right. Uh, it's a lot easier to go to a peasant farmer in Russia and say <laughs> the the aristocracy is oppressing you. We have to overthrow them mm-hmm. than it is to go to a you know a, decent middle class, a, a decent middle class Englishman mm-hmm. and say um, you know we have to overthrow. Which is interestingly <laughs> why the aristocracy has never been overthrown in England, right? Because they the aristocracy there was a little bit more careful about trying to improve the lives of its citizens and and slowly devolving power to the point where i mean they essentially don't have that much anymore well i think it's no surprise that it was england that the concept of well at least as far as i know the concept of enlightened self-interest kind of has come from yes (laughs) right yes so anyway that's a different conversation actually was scotland but well okay but but the uk yeah. yeah yeah Not to belabor the point, my hobby horse on the misfiring of communism in practice is partially slash maybe even mostly because of how Marx didn't give enough conversation to there being more than two kinds of people in the yes. world. Yes, I like that. Of, it, it, of, it's, it's either on Animal Farm, it's either man or animal. Yeah. And in the Marxist sense, it's either bourgeoisie or, you know, proletariat. The, yeah. Well, uh, maybe there are thousands of different kinds of proletariats who don't always agree with each other, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, and forget about sports teams. Sometimes you're just mad at someone for no reason. <laughs> right. right. Like the, the kind of craziness of what it is to be a person in the first place, the individual level, like someone just looks at you wrong, you're in a bad mood, you want to go fight them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're just pissy. You, maybe you ate something that made you feel a little bit more yeah. miserable than normal. and That person could be way poorer than me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't hate or them. Or way richer. Yeah. It doesn't matter. I don't hate them because they're a bourgeoisie. I hate them because they're an annoying asshole. <laughs> right? And so like that impoverished view on the way that the working class would interact with each other was so well captured by Orwell and Animal Farm at the yeah. beginning. Hey, it was like... Well, also how, they div- how, how, the, how you can use factions against one another to like prove your or to 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 maintain your power i'm Mm -hmm. sure you you have something to say about that later but yes well yeah (laughs) Yeah. and then just the last thought on major just to close the idea is that he also says it's important to not become like the men yeah he's very clear which is why this idea takes gets so much steam at the start the ending of the book being a perfect encapsulation of this so, because she's not in the book very much, I guess we could talk about her all at once. What's your take on Molly? Molly is the filly, I guess, or the mare, the white horse, yeah. and all she wants is ribbons and sugar, the trivialities of life. And there's a part where she, like the last part in the book where she's in there, she takes sugar and ris- ri- ribbons from Pilkington, which is the neighbor, and three days later disappears. She is enjoying herself with people, and all, and instead of... um. Instead of like debating the merits of Molly, what's interesting to me is that the animals, what Orwell says, is the animals just forget her. She's just not even in the conversation anymore. So there's two things here, I guess, to talk about is the triviality of Molly is one of the things that to me makes it seem like the revolution is justified, right? Because there is obviously a negativity in the superficiality of a commercial or overly commercial or a consumer part of life that I think is often attributed to capitalism, but I would consider it more like a free rider parasite element of capitalism, right? And then also just the second part being of the ideology, just like erasing, in a sense, the memory of all of the things that don't line up flush with that ideology. Well, so one of the things that the Soviets hated was celebrity. 
Mm, interesting. Okay. Originally, I see Molly as celebrity. Molly is someone who appreciates, and here's why people, and here's why I think she, she's irrelevant, is because relevant I, or irrelevant. Irrelevant. Okay. And I think because when it comes to power, real power not the kind of power that people think they have when they have a lot of Instagram followers or <laughs> or when right. or when they are, have famous music or any of these things. These things are actually irrelevant to power. And this is why it's so important because Marx's ideology firmly absconces the idea that the only real struggle is one of power. Right. And and that the struggle between is is that and that oppression i.e. the oppression of the bourgeoisie, of the working class, mm. is the great evil that must be overthrown. Mm-hmm. So in the case of celebrities, they don't matter at all. And I, and I say this now. Celebrities don't matter. Right. Um, in this framing that you're using, right? In, in the Marxist paradigm. Right. I, I, I think musicians, I, I think we've made it clear our, <laughs> our position on beauty and what we think and the, and, of uh, the arts. And, and probably and, maybe even for both of us, the superlative nature of music in the aesthetic or or hierarchy. even books right yeah. or or all these things there's a reason that there's book burnings in the marxist worlds and that there's right. almost a hatred of the arts or if there is arts that they're very uniform mm-hmm. and that you don't allow the individual to thrive because <laughs> the, yeah the, the the apartment blocks in the soviet yeah. <laughs> union don't make make the heart soar no, do they? The, no they don't and the reason for that is is quite simple in in a world where power is the currency celebrity is irrelevant mm mm-hmm. mhm because celebra- celebrity is a worship of the individual, and the individual, in a sense, is the enemy of the group. Mm-hmm. And if anything, communism is a very harsh form of utilitarianism, right? The right. good of the many outweighs the, right. the good of the few. Yeah. And so Molly is someone who seems to be concerned with... she. What is she concerned with? Ribbons and sugar. Yeah. Frivolous things. Yeah. Things that may make life more enjoyable. That are just purely vanity-based. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which is the communist view of the arts. Interesting, because I wouldn't have associated Molly with the arts, right? I, I totally take your point on her being maybe a distraction. You know, in the Glorious Revolution, why do you want ribbons? Like, you're what you actually want is so trivial yeah, that yeah. you're not even worth our time, so fuck off kind of thing. I mean, there were other parts of it that I got the sense of their disinterest in the arts. So yeah, sure I don't think there's... you're wrong in in that being the I communist. Just think that I, I, I don't know if that was uh, Orwell's intention, but that's my thought on the matter. Sure. Is that, um, and, and we see this in the United States. We see this now. These They call them in, themselves influencers. <laughs> right. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of noise and I think, I mean, it's like um, Nick Silver says, one of the great difficulties of our modern age is finding the signal in the noise. Mm. And you can, if, if, you're, if you're Kanye West, you can think you have a lot of power. Right. You don't. Sure. Right? You have a, you have a lot of eyeballs. Mm-hmm. But there's a big difference. If you're Putin, you don't care what <laughs> Kanye West thinks about you one way or the other. Yeah. If you're, uh, you know, if if you're Donald Trump, you might care, but for very different reasons than mm. Kanye West might want you to care. And and the reason I bring this out is, this is something that is understand understood by Marxists mm-hmm. very clearly right. that that bread and circuses are bread and circuses, mm-hmm. but the real game, like the the game of thrones, the game of power, is unconcerned with these things. Well, I think that is probably well. Okay. 
do you think then that the trivialities or the unnecessity, I, I feel like these are things that would be utilized cynically by maybe someone like Stalin, although I don't know this to be historically true, but like, okay, well, when I need a distraction for the populace, Except I can it's weird use because they don't seem to do that. Yeah, they don't. I, I don't know. I don't know the, the history well enough to know. If and neither does, much. neither do the Chinese now. Right. Because it's, it's, they don't need to. Mm-hmm. They have the dogs. Right. Right. They, right. they have power so they, they're not they don't need to use the arts in the same way that perhaps a, a less overt tyranny would mm. well and that actually might be a good segue into the difference between snowball and napoleon right yeah because snowball spends most of his time actually appealing to the animals yeah <laughs> right like he right, does yeah. he, i guess in the way that trotsky would have and i mean the the Scuttlebutt is that Trotsky was a very well-spoken person and a very dyed-in-the-wool revolutionary who knew Marxism in and out, who knew... And believed it. And believed it. He was a true believer. He was a true believer who was using all the words. And that's why it's funny when um, the line with the birds, they did not understand Snowball's long words, but accepted his explanation. Yeah. Right? Like, well, the birds being the people who work hard, contribute a lot to the overall society, but don't really know what to make about the revolution itself yeah and so they're like of snowball they're like well he says all these big words so he must be smart (laughs) (laughs) right so i will go along with him but i think it's um it's a good way to think about it and how i guess snowball slash trotsky would have been the one more interested in something like public opinion or something like influencing or celebrity but that's because he actually is a true ideologue and therefore wants to convince the mm. populace yeah. of his ideas because I mean that's what it's it's proselytizing. He's he's a it, he is a priest of the religion. Yeah, you can imagine that Snowball or Trotsky reading, I guess, Major or Marx in this case, like his heart would have swelled. Yes. Right? Like he actually would have been captivated he, by the utopia. By the idea of improving the lot of man. Now, that is, in one sense, quite noble. If you are inspired... Now, I don't think Marx, Marxism can do this for the human condition. But if you read Marx and are deeply inspired to help people, that is, in some sense, the, tr- the, the best thing Marx did for the world, right? Well, if the plight of, let's say, the working man... Uh, I don't think that's a good distinction anymore uh, because I... I I think we've lost the thread on what a working man or <laughs> right. a woman even looks like. But if the plight of the working class, the downtrodden, inspire you, the yeah. downtrodden, the truly, the truly downtrodden, again, then then you're then you're you have more uh, in line with the you know Christian teachings than you do with anything else. Well, I mean, this is why I think sarcastically or even cynically, the modern leftist or liberal makes fun of. The conservative Christian by saying, "Well, you realize Jesus was a communist, right? Right. right. <laughs> now well, there's a there's now, a now. certain ethos there that is they're, they're similar for sure. And I mean, I don't want to. But I mean, we not, can, not I mean, going no, deep, that's a, that's deep philosophy of debate. Jesus, yeah. right? Uh, that's but but the point I they're not I, obviously different. Well, like Jesus is telling the individual to care about the poor, and the co- the difference is the communist is saying that violence should be. Well, used and I mean, to-, it, to me, it can be just as simple as saying Jesus says, "Take care of the log in your own eye before the speck in your neighbor's." Yeah, 
in communism is saying your neighbor fucked you and so we have to stop them yes <laughs> yes and i and, and so well here's just a completely here's, here's it going let's go back to what i said earlier about philosophy versus ideology right christianity in its purest and best form let's call it the faith form as opposed to the religious form right is is really a philosophy of how to live mm-hmm. your personal life definitely whereas with an emphasis on the individual exactly Whereas the emphasis of an ideology is on the group. Mm-hmm. And so Christianity makes our true faith, true philosophy, mm. makes you look inward right. and say, "How I can't change the external world. I can only change my reaction to the external world. How do I do that? Mm-hmm. Whereas ideology demands right. a change from the external world. Right. With no demarcation, I might point out, yes. of when that would be enough. Well, exactly. Which, <laughs> Which is, is another point Which we'll get to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. I, I like and that. So, I, and I want to make it clear to the, to everyone listening that religion can be ideological, but anything. Like this is a great point that Luke brought up in our in our True Detective podcast. Religion is only a very clear symptom of the human disease, right? It's it's it is a manifestation. Mm-hmm of a problem that exists, and that is the unwillingness to have nuance and personal reflection mm. and the desire to tie identity to, a, to a, a system of belief. Well, this is why the world needs people like George Orwell, because George Orwell is someone who... They're, they're like a... <laughs> it's like a weird PSA person for humanity, <laughs> where yeah. some of them... And, and Trotsky maybe could be the best example of someone who fell prey to this, is that... The most inspiring stories that seem most obviously moral and ethical and worth pursuing are obviously the most gameable by bad actors. Yes. Right? Yeah. Like the things that would make the heart swell are the ones that exact that's exactly where the cynics will go to take it over. Yeah. <laughs> because, because that's the that's easiest path. That easiest path, and it will have it will have the most amount of people underneath it supporting it because they think it's something different. Yeah. Right? So, in Christianity, you want to take one of the greatest ideas of all time of personal accountability, individualism, a relationship with Jesus, which I would say is the something... The dignity yeah, of the human person. Which is more something like the relationship of the part about you that could have the divine spark, right? And to, and to be worth doing something good in the world that is an inspiring message of course that's where the wolves will go to take it over because it's already the table's already made for them right there's already all the people there who like that idea so why not become a bishop why not become a cardinal why not become someone who why not become the leader of a mega church why not become the why would you go through the trouble of becoming the establishment of something no one thinks anyway Right. <laughs> right? Like, that right. makes no sense. No. Of course, go become the establishment of things that people already say that they think is important. I guess we would say the same thing about communism. The elements of communism that are inspiring, the parts of Snowball that want to improve the lives of the animals, wants to build the wild mill, like, truly believe that if they do these things, they will have mash and apples for all of time, right? Well, there's a ready-made... In evolutionary terms, it's, it's, it's very gameable, right? Well, and <laughs> It's very easy to slide in and take it over. Now... We don't have to talk about this. I feel like that might be something we're also seeing in a modern world. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> because I don't. Uh, Solomon ga- Solomon are- says there's nothing new under the sun, right? right? 
there isn't. This is something we've talked about before, but humans haven't changed. Mm -hmm. The tools we have have changed. Right. But that doesn't mean that we are different. Right. And it's only been less than 100 years, okay, a little bit over 100 years now, since communism took over Russia. Mm Mm-hmm. We haven't evolved. Yeah. We haven't changed. We're fundamentally the same We're the species. same biological, you know, meat bags that we were then. And in light of that, the same lusts for power, the same mm-hmm. desires for control, the same um, use of propaganda in order to maintain control, all of that has not changed. What should have changed is the realization that when a force can capture the human tendency for empathy Mm -hmm. which is really what marxism is is it is uh it it produces in the mind of the adherents a a feeling of righteousness because the cause is just right that will allow you to push yourself a lot (laughs) harder because most people are not cynical, power-hungry people. Mm-hmm. They genuinely do want to do what's right in the world. Of course. And what we're seeing, let's say with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, I think what we're seeing is a lot of people's horror at racism being amplified to be used by others in a more nefarious direction. Mm-hmm. And part of what Orwell is pointing out is that the people who stand to gain from co-opting or free riding or taking over a at least nominally just movement have a deep interest in discrediting the people who notice that yes <laughs> right so you that's have why, to discredit that's why people. you that's why i would say that's why we even have terms like heretic or yeah. blasphemer right the people burned at the stake in the middle ages these were people who weren't they wouldn't they didn't even have to say like well maybe the priest isn't the emissary of Jesus on the planet, right? They would just have to say things that could even eventually lead to that conclusion, right? You could be way further up the path from that than, you know, like obviously by the time communism was falling in the Soviet Union, you just like, there's so many crazy stories from Solzhenitsyn about people not even trusting telling their family about their real thoughts about what was going on in the country. Like, what madness is that? Yeah, and I think that that is useful to think about in all eras of human life yes and even times in that we're not fundamentally different people now as you point out right and so to make it i guess animal farmy again is that in a sense snowball he was like part of orwell but not enough i guess in a sense or trotsky was like i imagine orwell had some of the same kind of aspirations for humanity that trotsky did but the difference is Orwell didn't turn. He kept his. He kept one eye. Uh, here, with Snowball, he had both his eyes on the animals and not one eye on Napoleon, right? No. <laughs> and Orwell was more like, well, okay, you need both. Actually, you need to have an eye on the animals. You need to have an eye on the people. But you also need to keep an eye on the people who would want to take over this movement and have no scruples. Yes. <laughs> and that's why I think people like Orwell... Well, and it's not enough... They resonate for us, right? Not enough just to have the people on your side, mm-hmm. right? There, There's this idea that if you have the, the populace on your side in modern movements that you that you win, right? Because the you animals need, agreed with... You, need, you do need people to notice the encroaching bad actors hijacking 
a movement. Now, I actually don't think Marxism works with human nature, but that's not even the point. The point is that it doesn't have to be Marxism. It can be, you know, Catholicism. Any ism. Any ism that can be hijacked by bad actors. And I think part of the tragedy of a character like Snowball is that it clearly didn't even cross his mind that there would be a bad actor coming in to take it over. No. (laughs) Right? Why, if it was, he played it pretty poorly. That's because true believers don't realize that there's wolves to Mm -hmm. the same degree. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Dave and I just want to take a second to thank you all for listening. It's a total privilege to read the books and watch the movies and TV shows that we do for this podcast, and we hope it's something you find edifying and maybe even a little fun. It's really important to David and I that we are open and transparent about our thoughts on the podcast. If you have any clarifications, thoughts, ideas, requests, critiques, complaints, or curiosities, please feel free to get in touch with us. We have a Facebook group called Really True Fiction where you can reach us. Also, you can send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. You can subscribe to Really True Fiction on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other major podcast hosting applications to get notifications when new episodes are released. If you like the podcast, please feel free to leave a rating or review on iTunes. This is a super good way to help new people find the show. Also, word of mouth is the most powerful and integral form of reference. If you feel like our podcast has value or merit, please tell your friends about it as we're always hoping to grow. Thank you once again for listening to Really True Fiction, as this podcast is a total blast to make. Have a great day, and may the force be with you. Yeah. And then, to bring the other, put the other shoe on on that one, the note I have, at least the first note for Napoleon, is how he's so good at canvassing support between the big speeches, and the big, he's, he's, the, he's not the pomp and ceremony person, in the same way that at least in the beginning, Stalin wouldn't have been either. But there's that great scene where he um, he kind of steals the puppies from, yes. I think it's like Bluebell and Jesse or Pinscher maybe, and then raises them himself away from everybody else so that when they come back as full-grown dogs, bearing their teeth and being strong, the other animals are kind of at his mercy. And there's a great parallel there about like, well, uh, get them when they're young. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And... I think it's interesting to note how a lot of these movements, these like any movement in history, whether we're seeing it now or in, in the past, is that how often it is youth-led, like how, how often it is people probably in their teens and early 20s who provide a lot of the moral fervor of that. And that makes sense in one sense. That's like when you have a lot of moral energy. I mean, that's been documented by lots of other people, not just me noticing it <laughs> or feeling it when I was in my early 20s, right? I mean, there, I, I'll admit when I was in college, I was like, fuck yeah, communism, all these rich assholes, right. people homeless right. and starving in the street, what the shit is this? And I agreed with my own opinion more than I cared to go read anything relevant or scholarly on the topic, right? And so, I don't know, I think there's probably a, something meditative here about, because um, like the thing is, those puppies, if Napoleon is the one who raises them and it, and is teaching them things as they grow, they're not going to have the same tools. That, so the, here's the here's the important part too in, in reference to Animal Farm. These puppies don't remember the revolution. They were born after the revolution. They don't know the tragedy or what life was like before it. They don't even have, a, they wouldn't even really have an appreciation for the other animals on the farm. Why would they, right? They don't know them and they weren't, friends with them and they didn't spend any time with them so it's like nothing it's no sweat off their back to abuse all of the other animals on the farm 
right? No. They just, they're just at the beck and call of the person who gives them food in the first place. So, I don't know if any of that resonates with you. Well, I think, um, I think that's, you, you have, like, when you, if we go into a political slash nation state view of this kind of thing, you have to have the violent on your side if you want to maintain power. Mm-hmm. Right and and how do you do that with indoctrination? Mm-hmm. And you don't want the violent to be incredibly intelligent, mm-hmm. right? You don't want the violent and 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 it's interesting that Orwell picks dogs as um, perhaps the the tools of violence because dogs are incredibly loyal to their owner. Yeah, and also dogs are generally pretty smart. But what's interesting though, this is important, is that the puppies are taken away not just from the community but also from their parents. So there's a there's a breaking up of the family as well, which is crucial for the power structure that Napoleon needs on the farm, in a sense, right? Yeah, he, and he I, needs their undying and their specific loyalty. Right, and I mean, there's no accident that ideological movements have, <laughs> at best, a frosty relationship with family. Yes, <laughs> and, yes. And much more, <laughs> honestly, like a malevolent or antagonistic relationship with family, because... That it like, well, if you love your parents, that could take like you might love your parents more than you love the great leader or the dear leader or the country, right? Especially if the dear leader tells you that your parents are evil or wrong. So I think it's it's not surprising that a lot of ideological takeovers in the world have been like explicitly anti-family and also very figuring out ways to separate people from their families, right? Like a lot of re-education is taking kids away from their parents, right? I don't know. Like I just think that there's some deep connection between needing young people to trumpet your message and the removal of the familial or more deeply relational impacts on their life, right? I mean, in the Soviet Union, like we just mentioned, husbands would turn on wives, wives would turn on husbands because it was like, it becomes survival mode. Like you don't know who's secret police. You don't know who's in the pocket of who. You don't know what kind of threats have happened to a member of your family if they don't turn you in. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think, uh, going back to the dogs though, it's, it's, um, I love the the story from, it's a little story that Littlefinger tells in Game of Thrones, Mm. right? And And he says, you know, there's a, there's a priest, and there's a king, mm-hmm. and there's a merchant, right? And they're all standing in front of a knight mm-hmm. and telling the knight to kill the other two. Mm-hmm. Who does the knight kill, or who does the knight listen to? Uh, I don't remember this story. So the one that he believes has power, <laughs> right? Interestingly, the knight is the one in this scenario that has all the power. Of course, but his perception of where power mm. lies is actually yeah. That's a great point. Where it's um, actually the dogs could win if they, they have the power. Yeah. yeah, but they <laughs> why don't... are the dogs listening to Napoleon? <laughs> because they're the clever ones, right? Because the pigs are the clever ones. Mm-hmm. Because the pigs are the ones that are able to convince the dogs mm-hmm. that they can give them a better life. Or whatever, whatever they're using to convince the dogs who are incredibly loyal that they should be the ones in charge. Yeah, so the power structure doesn't have an interest in embedding critical thinking into the no, well, muscle this is what I wanted of the to, country. This is what I wanted to build on further. The importance of having loyalty in your violent members of society. And when I say violent, I just don't I don't just mean people who commit violence, but those who have the power to commit violence. Mm-hmm. Like the they're, strong. Yeah. 
like a like an army or a police officer or anyone who 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 wields the power of the state in violence. Right. You need them to be loyal to you. Mm-hmm. And this is what I find so fascinating and actually laughable about uh, this defund the police movement <laughs> and all of this stuff is, is police brutality hor- horrific? Yes. Yeah. Is there corruption in the police? 100%. Mm-hmm. Are there problem, systemic problems? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, of course, all of that. But let's be realists here. <laughs> if you want to defund the police and your opponents support the police... And the police have a monopoly on violence. Mm-hmm. And not only that, the police are the best at violence <laughs> of any of your citizens, probably. They, they train all the time. Although probably not enough. There's probably not enough of them. Well, I think oh. training is one oh, of the yes, things no, that, training, that yes. needs to be improved in police. But let's training to do violence, they get a lot of. <laughs> sure, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, who's going to win? Like, I want everyone who really cares about this to think for a moment, where does your path lead? Mm-hmm. Because I'll tell you right now that if you continue along this path, this will be the result. Mm. The right will win. The mm. radical, scary right that you actually hate. Because given the choice between order and chaos, well, the they, vast majority... They have more guns. Yeah, and the vast majority of humanity, given the choice between order and chaos, will always... Pick order. Mm -hmm. And they will sacrifice your principles and their principles for the trains to run on time Mm -hmm. and for food in their, in their, uh, like, and that that will happen. Mm -hmm. So, so think about what tearing the system down actually results in. Well, this is, this is, um, you're going to end up with a Napoleon. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's kind of part of the payoff of, yeah, of this entire episode, I guess, is that, uh, when you get to like these levels of, I don't even like to say hysteria, but like ultimatums maybe is a better way to think about it. Like get defund the police if it means maybe lower their funding and put it into better places through study. Okay, that's a reasonable perspective we can talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, If it means abolish the police, as apparently there was one opinion letter in the New York Times that now whatever, it's an opinion letter, but it's also the New York Times. You have to weigh those two things against each other, but how seriously to take it. There's like, radical thought experiments that seem radical but really aren't is that even a 98 percent corrupt police force is still safer than anarchy yeah <laughs> right like that's what's so well let's counterintuitive let's, let's take about this situation in our seattle, time right we got this group of people in seattle oh, chaz chop yeah which has now been dismantled and here's why because over the course of three nights two black men were shot in this supposedly utopia because guess what guys anarchy <laughs> attracts bad actors yes of like, course yeah where where do the criminals thrive well okay so this is another this this loops back a bit i think to the point we just made about the puppies is that if you don't have a solid education on something like the philosophy of law enforcement let's say right like why do we have cops in the first place this is a question that i think needs to be answered if you're gonna have, if you're gonna be taken seriously as someone who says we need to abolish police, well, like, or even defund yeah. them, right? Yeah, it's like true detective, right? Why- <laughs> I'm not saying I, I, I want to premise this by saying I'm not saying that police officers are bad. I don't think that. Mm-hmm. But you need men who can do bad things, i.e., violence, mm. in order to protect us from the really bad men. Well, I, I think maybe a good way to think about it is that you need people who can win in self-defense. Right. Right. <laughs> like self-defense is pointless if you couldn't win that even, 
Well, it's right? like I love Jordan Peterson where he says, you can't be a good, weak man. Mm-hmm. If you're so weak that you can't actually hurt anyone, then your lack of hurting someone does not make you virtuous. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, of course. But like I'm thinking about that that case in Seattle of you know the autonomous zone and the, like if you were if you really had never been taught why um, the advent of a of a police unit or force in human civilization was actually a massive gain in freedom and yeah. safety yeah. if you were never taught that if your experience with cops in your own personal life has been relatively negative and maybe even negative because of racial reasons let's say I'll, I'll even grant that for the sake of argument. If you've never had that education in the first place, if you've only ever had bad experiences with cops, why not float this idea out there of an autonomous zone where anarchy rules? Like, I can see why that would be really appealing for some people in the for world. For an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but I'm not... This is the point, is that those puppies weren't idiots in no. Animal Farm. No. They were just hijacked by a bad actor at a young age. I don't think a lot... Like, uh, this is... I honestly feel this. I don't think... A lot of the young people who have a fervor for defund the police are idiots. I think that they, it's tempting to call them that based on obnoxiousness, right? Right. But I think the right antidote is fortitudinal scholars reinvesting in the philosophy of law enforcement in the public square. Well, maybe this is like a <laughs> fundamental first principle that you and I disagree on. But I would say that I don't believe that facts matter. I think people's lives, and I think we see this in Animal Farm, which is why I bring it up, people's lives are ruled by emotion. Let's take, why do the animals... Well, but, but our institutions are exactly the things that make our emotional outbursts have less and less Which is why we need something like the police force, but looking into the philosophic underpinnings of it and 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 educating people on that, I don't think that's going to have the same impact. Well, it perhaps. depends. I mean, it, it depends. The, the, these would be, in theory or in principle, empirical things we could find out about the population. True. <laughs> right? True. Like we could, um, I, I've heard these numbers floated of like how the fringe right and left are actually just 14% of yeah, the entire tiny. population. Yeah, yeah. So it's like the joke was, um, were they 86%? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, it's not that I don't think people have emotional reactions. I just think that there are a lot of people who are capable of over time course correcting based on information that comes their way. And that's all I mean. Is that okay, like yeah. there there wouldn't be zero obnoxious airheads in this, but there'd be less. Especially if you like those puppies are all caught up in a moral fervor. They think they're doing the right thing for Napoleon, right? Because right. Napoleon's the one who's been feeding them their whole life. So that's just an interesting way to think about it. True. Right? True. So anyway, I suppose we should move in a bit into the propaganda aspect yes, of Animal this Farm. this is important. This is a very important part. So the main propagandist is Squealer. And here, let's just, let's just bring up a couple of his lines. He's saying this to the animals. It is for your sake we drink the milk and eat the apples. So he's saying, well, we don't really want all the best food on the farm, us pigs, but we need to be your leaders. So without us, fully fed and, and watered and milked, I guess, you're not going to get the best out of us. And do you really not want to get the best out of us? We're doing it for you, yeah. right? So it's, um, it's a form of manipulation there where it's like the facts on the ground haven't changed. We're still getting all the best food and you're starving. But, but now you, you feel better about it. But do you really not want us, your leaders, to be at our A game? Right. Are you that level of even... 
traitorous where you don't want us. So it's like, <laughs> this is interesting. It is pre-programming the idea of guilt on the people who are just simply curious about yeah. a legitimate question. <laughs> like, well, where's our food? Where's the food? We all worked for it. Shouldn't we get some too? Did we not earn it? Aren't all animals equal? Well, do you really want to like be so selfish as to take away food from the people who are trying to make this place better, mm -hmm. right? Now, if you don't have a critical thought or a critical mind, yeah, I could see that working, yeah, <laughs> right? me too. And so then just questions that Squealer asks are like telling his comrades leadership. He's actually the character that says comrade in the book the most, which is funny. Yep. He's telling his comrades leadership is hard and they should be grateful. Are you sure you didn't dream it? <laughs> right? I know he gaslights the entire oh, farm so all the time, right? He's like, oh no, it didn't happen that way. You're just misremembering it. Makes them question their own rationality mm -hmm. all the time. The animals are always in agreement with who is ever speaking in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like everything sounds so good. So I think, hmm, where do I want to land here? Something like against beds? Never. And the manipulation of vague language to be used later. So I think we can't, we, ha we should bring up here the idea of the vagueness of language being part of the lifeblood of the propaganda of the tyrant or the ideological takeover of something, right? So I think we mentioned before on House of Cards where uh, Frank Underwood is trying to pass some sort of like really, really dickish and um, probably on unconstitutional thing, right? can't remember what it was. And he says, the lawyer is there and he's like, oh, we probably shouldn't do this. I don't know if we can really do this. We might get caught or this is going to, we're going to get a lot of pushback from this. And then Frank says, well, but legally, can we do it? And the lawyer says, well, the language is sufficiently vague. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is another Orwell point. He has a great, I guess it's an essay or several essays compilation called Politics in the, in the English, English Language, language yeah. where he masterfully delineates the difference between clarity and confusion and how the Soviet Union and Stalin used unclear language to be dominant. And the pigs do that. Not only do they use unclear language, they redefine their own commandments. Yes. <laughs> they, well, no yeah. pigs should sleep in beds with sheets, yeah. right? Or, uh, um, or drink alcohol to excess. To excess, right? Now, what counts as excess? Where are we going? And, and I, I think I mentioned earlier, and this is a deep philosophical point to be made, is that I just recently read Karl Popper's Conjectures and Refutations. And it's an interesting book. It's, it's like the, one of the best books on the philosophy of science because he argues that the point of science is not to actually observe the physical world and, and make deductions from that or inductions from that. It's that what problems are we trying to solve? What are our conjectures about those problems? How do we refute them? And what are our demarcations? I think that's the important word. When would we know we're right and when we would know we're wrong? And let's predict that, right? Now, in the language that's being used on Animal Farm, there's no point where Squeal there's no way Squealer could be wrong in no. any of the things he said. There's no way Napoleon could be wrong about any of the things he says, right? It's just, um, I'm thinking of an example, but like, they just say things like, well, tomorrow it'll be better. <laughs> well, what do you mean? <laughs> like, or snowballs to blame, yeah. right? It's interesting how things get introduced in propaganda. You need an enemy. But the problem with having a clear enemy mm -hmm. is that then you have 
you know, then then reality can set in, and you don't want reality set in, so you you keep changing it. Mm-hmm. But the nice thing about Snowball is he's not there, and mm-hmm. he's never going to be again, probably. <laughs> yeah. And so what they're able to do is he's the bogie boogeyman. Yeah, he's uh, he's capitalism. Mm-hmm. He's the he's the U.S. He's right? Hitler. He's Hitler. He's he's whoever they need him to be at any given time to scare the people, to to sow confusion, to to blame. Because you in a system like Stalin's Soviet Union, you have to have a devil. Right. You have to have yes. something that you hold up as the opposite. Of the, why? Of why your and promises bl- aren't coming true. Yeah. Something. Something or someone to blame for the way things are. Well, the windmill is a perfect example of this in the book because they work so hard to build this windmill and the windmill is was originally <laughs> this is another funny part. The, originally the windmill was Snowball's idea. Yeah. And Napoleon was against it. And then as soon as Napoleon gets driven out by the dogs, like a week later Napoleon says, "Actually, the windmill was a good idea and that was actually my idea the whole time." And so that's it's like Snowball, this guys. erasure yeah. of remembered history is an important component. Like Part of it is, I think, the audacity of the lie is part of why it's even being done. Because people are like, well, <laughs> right. why Why would you lie about something so obvious? Yeah, exactly. I must be wrong. Yeah, because exactly. It, does, like, exactly. it doesn't make any sense. What, to- like, like the, the more absurd the lie is, the more you have to capitulate your soul to believe it. Yes. And, I mean, this is a more of a 1984 thing than an animal farm thing, but the capitulation of your soul is needed for the winning of the totalitarianist mindset. Yes. Right? And so with the windmill, they build the windmill eventually as Napoleon's idea, and this is after Snowball's been kicked out, and and then he is demonized when the when the windmill crumbles. Like there's a day it just falls down. And objectively, slash what all the neighboring humans say is that, well, you didn't build the walls thick enough. Yeah. You didn't make it strong enough. So of course it was going to fall because, and then the note I made on this point is like, well, this is the whole point of expertise and meritocracy is that you find like in a capitalist system, and I mean this in the most positive sense of the term catalyst you actually find <laughs> i can't believe it. you find the best windmill m- w- maker right <laughs> right you find the person who's the best at making windmills or you figure out some way to do that i mean this is why we do reviews on, yes uh, yeah. on <laughs> leave a yelp review or something right exactly or more ideally you have an expert reviewer reviewing experts but expertise and capacity and meritocracy are a problem in the first place on Animal Farm because if all animals are equal, then there shouldn't actually be a better windmill maker than any other animal because right. they that wouldn't be, be equal, yeah. right? So yeah. you have a logical conundrum here, which I actually think is not really a problem because you're talking about different kinds of equality, talent versus moral worth, yeah. which are which are different forms of argument and very comprehensible to any listener with a reasonable mind. Nevertheless... Once the windmill falls, because you didn't make it well, because you don't know actually how to make a windmill, here's this important part. And this is like a center, a central problem that I want to get at, which I don't think is necessarily unique to our viewpoint, but I haven't really heard talked about much more, is that the tragedy of Animal Farm, and, and this is the deepest tragedy, is that it doesn't even solve the problems it says it's going to solve, right? It no. doesn't even rise to the level, even with all of the abuses, that go on, you're still not solving the problems that are there in the first place. They're actually because, worse off. Yeah, they well, I mean, they do rebuild the windmill later, but however, the whole point of the windmill was so that they could eat better, that they could have more re- relaxation and leisure. Now, are you going to make a better windmill by blaming Snowball for its demise? 
No. Well, of course not. Right. <laughs> right. Right. You're definitely you're not improving your farm by just blaming Snowball. You're not improving the Soviet Union by just blaming Trotsky. Right. However, the energy has to go into this blame because there's a a hole in the ethos in the first place, which is anti-meritocratic. Yeah. Right. So this is the tragedy, I think, the deep tragedy of pervasive ideology slash communism slash cultural Marxism, identitarianism, whatever you want to say, is that this seems controversial and I don't think it should be. Let's say you do defund the police. Let's say you get rid of them. Does that help black people? I would think that that's one of the communities that would be hardest hit by the erasure of the police, right? So a lot of times, well-intentioned potential or potentially well-intentioned ideological claims, if brought to fruition, don't actually help the people you're claiming to help in the first place right which is an important thing to think about when you're going about trying to solve problems like it yeah it is but that's not how the world works well i i don't know about that i think that a casual review of history is that we have solved a lot of problems there have been a lot of actual problems solved or at least improved right right like life expectancy is what 80 something for mm-hmm, humans mm-hmm. now and it used to be 40 <laughs> Or 35, right, even right. 150 years ago. I would call that an improvement. Infant mortality is way down. I'd call that an improvement. Um, yeah, but there I, are I, metrics I think, where this happens. I think that um, what I mean to say is that doesn't happen because the people that are proponents of defunding the police are re-educated. That happens despite those people. Those people are the ideologues. They're not the scientists. They're not... Because the scientific mindset, the, the maybe the... Um, Critical think. Yeah, the critical, that's called the critical, is is not actually, it doesn't care about being right and wrong. It cares about being less wrong. Yeah, but I think it's concerned with being less wrong in order to solve a problem. Right, right. Like, where at, well, exactly, mm-hmm. which is not actually the concern of the people saying defund the police. Yes, but however... They don't, they don't actually, like, it isn't actually about making but, the lives of black but people But this better. is the important part. The animals on Animal Farm don't know how to counteract Napoleon's point when he says it's actually Snowball. No. Right? And not even that. Because some of them would, right? Like, I think Benjamin would have that. And maybe a couple of the other pigs who get... It's that the power structures are such that there is no safe way for them to have a public hearing about it. Right? Mm -hmm. There's no public square. There's no inquiry open inquiry right i mean we even think about this the structure of the government of animal farm makes the behavior of the power structure of the animal farm completely invisible to all of the people who it affects right Mm. and that's different than um like i think it's even squealer mentions like well we have documents saying that snowball actually he didn't even (laughs) this is the most audacious part he actually fought with the humans yeah (laughs) the cow shed we have documents we can't show you those are classified yeah right right now countries that are nominally open countries eventually documents do get released to the press right they do get released to what is it called the fourth estate and so what is different is not that the ideologues are going to be you're not going to go up to to like the true believers or the sheep of Animal yeah. Farm and say, well, actually, if we had a better, better windmill maker, they'd know what to do here. You know, too, They're just going to blare the slogans at you. But you could 
in theory, and I would say in practice, we have countries like this where there are internal mechanisms in place so that people who don't think that way can make their voice heard. Yes. <laughs> right? And then all of the people, the vast majority of people, I say, who are, let's say, unsure of what the real answer is here, this is why they say all the animals are just agreeing with who's ever speaking. You make the right case. I don't know. <laughs> I have right, nothing right. to uh, put it against. So that's what I mean is that the manipulation of the language is part of helping the power structure stay there unaccountably and without without accountability, right? And so I think that's subtly different than saying, oh, we need to go convince the ideologues that we need meritocracy. Yeah, there's a, there's a subtle difference there. Here's something else I would say. Um, the people calling for... I'll say it like the pe they're being used, right? The uh, like the people calling for the defunding of the police. They're the sheep spouting the two legs are better than four, and tomorrow they might be saying, you know, four legs are good but two legs are better, right? Like they're easy to manipulate. These moralistic, passionate youth who think what they're doing. I mean. It seems simple when you talk about the four legs and the two legs, but let's dig into uh, defund the police. Who benefits from an attack on the police? Well, in the long run, it would be like the warlords or the mafia. Well, well, yeah, in, in, in our nation, but let's think about it more broadly. What is social social uh, disintegration? Who does that? What is the social disintegration of the United States? Who does that help? Well, right now it'd be Russia and China. Yeah, well, exactly. Right. So why wouldn't they want that? Why? Well, why, yeah. Why? Why wouldn't they train whole swaths of a population to hate their leaders, to hate their institutions, to hate their structures? That's certainly not happening in China and Russia. No. And it's not happening because they know the weakness that that creates, mm -hmm. and they will. It, they just won't be allowed. Mm -hmm. And so freedom has become our enemy. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if I would quite get to that point i think un like they're, they're, uneducated uh, i'd have to think about that but i don't think freedom is our enemy i think it's sorry freedom is being used against us that's the the better way well yeah it. yeah yeah by actors by, who understand it's by benevolent by benevolent actors mm -hmm. and, and i think the antidote to that is just <laughs> maybe this comes back to our molly point people of influence and goodwill making their voices heard in a more common sense and reasonable way well, I mean, it all has to start at the level of the individual mm. speaking truth as much as possible, wherever possible. Yeah. Like, it's that great Auden poem, like, all I have is a voice, you know, to undo the folded lie. Yeah, mm. and that's that's exactly what is not possible on Animal Farm. Yeah. You, if, you, <laughs> if you speak up in China or in the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. the result is you're dead. Mm-hmm. You speak up here, you're fine. But people don't understand that that's a value anymore because the uh, the uneducated masses are mm -hmm. easily influenced into moral outrage, and their moral outrage is just justified enough that they never question it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, I mean, that's why the long-term fix is uh, education. It really yeah. is. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's I, I can't think of... More strong, thoughtful, critical thinking individuals. That's the yep. only long-term That's the fix. only one. Well, and, and yeah. Here's another point in line with image over essence, which I think is interesting. There's this part where Napoleon gets the sheep 
to spread rumors of there being lots of food on the farm when there isn't. And he fills the bins with sand to the top and then just food on the top because he remembers the importance of appearance over yeah. essence, right? When he, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, especially like with a lot of the starvation that the Soviet Union went through, uh, I think they, that's They a couldn't poignant. have their people, be- they couldn't have the outside world or their people believing that their system was failing mm-hmm. because that would make people begin to question it. So you have, then you have, when, it's funny because ideology has to cover up its failings in order to perpetuate itself and and violently attack yeah. its critics. Yeah. Because as soon as their its failings are exposed, the legitimacy of that ideology begins to crumble. Well, yeah, and you be, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because because the promise of the revolution is the inspiration, not the fruit that it renders. Yeah. Right? That's why the sloganeering is so crucial and that's why I would just encourage anyone to be suspicious of slogans. Right. Period. When you in any fashion, it could be you know, it could be a hashtag. It could be a hashtag. It could be Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It could, it could be, be anything. It could be anything, right? Well, here's a good example, right? Is uh, the Coney 2012, like the moral outrage across the globe. The and it did nothing. Coney's still in power. Mm, yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. There's an interesting mm, tangential psychological fact there about the. Uh, I call it pat yourself on the backism. Yeah, <laughs> I don't even want to call it virtue signaling exactly, although it's something akin to that. I, but I just I because I, virtue signaling I think is um, a social phenomenon. Pat yourself on the backism is how you actually like deceive yourself into yeah, thinking you've done. Yeah, 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 right? yeah. Like yeah. the psychology of self-deception into thinking you've done something really important. And I mean, like I'm not excluded from that. I, I remember very vividly about ten years ago, I went to Haiti with some friends, and we delivered a whole bunch of like clothes and toys and. I was just on a high from this and met all these people at a school. And it was just great. And then I came back and I had a friend say like, well, what did you really do? <laughs> right. It was like that country had an earthquake. It's butt fuck poor. Those people's lives aren't improved. Like they're, they're still stuck there. Like you're on this high right now, Luke, but what did you really do for that? Well, this, like, is, this is interesting. The pro- yeah. yeah. Like that's a great like, question. And the thing is like, that's an ego attack yes. for me. Right. Yes. It's like, how dare you say I don't support the removal of Coney 2012 right no. how dare you say i'm not on the right side of history here but it's like well but what again it comes back to me is like am i solving the problem right and pat yourself on the backism part of it is that you're not actually solving a problem right you're just because if you were solving a problem it would take a lot more time and effort exactly because real problems cannot be solved quickly and dedicating yourself to the solving of a problem could be a very noble endeavor yeah but you're not going to solve a but the problem is actually one of instant gratification, mm-hmm. right? You yeah. want to feel like you've done something right now. And that's the problem with everything. That's a problem with dating. That's a problem yeah. with hedonism. That's a problem with all of these things is it doesn't take into account that anything worth doing is a long and arduous task. Exactly. This is just a funny point that is, is fascinating because it gets kind of close to the realm of doublethink which is more famous 1984, but also important George Orwell. There's a scene where like, eventually all the farm's problems get blamed on Snowball, of course. But there's even a few problems that they find out they fix. Or I think there's a scene where something gets lost. It's blamed on Snowball that he stole it, but they find it. They found it again. And yet the rumor is still around that he stole it. So it's like yeah. even, even when the problem is solved, he's still blamed there for doing it. Or even when the thing is found, it's he's like, still oh, stole, he still stole it. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so like that, that's, I see the beginning of double think going on yeah. there yeah. in that one. Okay. So we, that moves us then in a little bit into the scenes of the confessions and the killings. Yeah. Right. 
which are obviously very analogous of the of the kind of purges that happened yeah in in that time and period. and the um the show trial yeah. aspect of all of that where i think it's mostly pigs and chickens are being killed on animal farm because they are admitting to helping snowball yeah. or something right and yet i it wasn't cl- this is something well, it's that actually interesting because it wasn't clear to me in the book why were they admitting to these things well I, it is not made clear okay uh, but i mean the interesting part about that scene is that the dogs actually also go after boxer but he beats the hell out of them and then napoleon realizes there's certain people you can't touch. Yes, at least not right? yet. Not yet. Right. Not until they're weak and broken, mm-hmm. and then you then you can have power. Over so them. does that mean that there were people in the Soviet Union who were kind of so popular or so famous that it would have been an outrageous? Well, like to kind go of heroes them? of the revolution. Right. 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 Like real heroes of the revolution, and which boxer is? Yeah. An animal farm, but like people that the the you know people that become part of the myth mythos and why is boxer such a perfect part of the mythos because he's a true believer mm-hmm. but he's a powerful true believer. He's very, not powerful in in his um in his wielding of power but powerful in his character and that shows mm-hmm. i mean his character is manipulated and used yeah and you're right i think he is the most tragic i mean everyone thinks boxer is the most tragic figure of animal farm mm-hmm. the tragedy is that he really believed it mm-hmm yeah, he did really, and and then it was it abandoned him because it wasn't the power structure wasn't interested in the things he was interested in. Yeah, and he wasn't smart enough to know that. Yes. but he had public support. There's an interesting thought here, I guess, about like how hard it is to forget the things that you actually experience. Right now, Squealer works pretty hard to make them forget that Snowball actually fought for them, not against but, them. But but Boxer <laughs> refuses to say that uh, that Snowball wasn't good at the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he says maybe he trained, transformed, and that's fine. But yeah, but you're you know. not going to make me forget the thing I know to be true. Yes, and yeah. the thing I saw. So yeah, that probably leads well then into this um, part with Clover. There's like a little meditation where like she's very faithful to the cause, but it's not what she's hoped for. So what are our thoughts, I guess, on the people who are like good-hearted, but are abandoned? Like, who are the people who get abandoned in revolutions? Well, I even think about this a lot in terms of uh, of Christianity, right? It's the people mm. who who firmly believe it all of their lives and dedicate their lives. I mean, there's a great book called Silence that I recommend everyone read mm. about the true believer and and the f- and faithfulness, and then this seeming silence from the heavens, perhaps, right? And whether whether whatever you believe, I think it's interesting the disappointment that can come from having a false belief about something and a false hope. And really what Clover is facing, I think, in that moment is a f- is, is the realization that she'd, she'd had a false hope, but an unwillingness to admit too much had been given to that. Like there, it's a sunk cost yeah, fallacy. Exactly. Right. It's the, I've, I've given too much s- of her own identity is wrapped up in this revolution. So it can't be that it didn't work. It just wasn't as good as she'd hoped, mm-hmm. right? It's still better, as she says, than it's still better than when Mister Jones was there, even though it's not. Mm-hmm. But she will. She can't say that. Mm-hmm. She can't say, "Well, actually, it's just empirically worse," because that would mean that everything that she dedicated her life to was of no value. Mm-hmm. And that that I think I think we. We do ourselves a dis- disservice mm-hmm. if we don't admit that that is an per- that is an impossible thing to admit mm-hmm. for a lot of people, because if if your whole life has been wrapped up in an identity, 
asking someone near the end of their life to discard that is a fool's errand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. I think that's an interesting thing. But there's... um, from I a... heard once that the only way change happens is when people die. Mm. Right? <laughs> yeah. I think psychologically, though, there's a sadness here that... I, f- I I just my heart went out to Clover. I guess yeah. <laughs> of all the characters, I, well, her I mean, and Boxer tragedy, the most. Right? Yeah, because she she sacrificed as much or more than anybody, and yet she wasn't invited to sleep in the house. No. Right? She wasn't given privileges. She wasn't given hot mash or milk to drink. And I think what is a really important lesson here for her is that she's basically left with a, like a couple options there, which is either to rebel against the rebellion, right? Or rebel against all of these encroaching things that she knows aren't in the spirit of the revolution, or at least the purported spirit of the revolution in the first place. Or, and she, there's kind of like a thought on this, she's the character that kind of just starts to we get her inner monologue a little bit more than any other. Uh, we get almost no inner monologue except her, hers a little bit in this one part where she's like, we. she knows that the commandments as they're written now are different than what they were at the revolution. Like she knows that it's been changed, but it's like, she's like, but were they really different? Right? Like she's letting, she's kind of like letting the sickness in so that she can live with herself. Yeah. Right. And I think that's probably what you're talking about is that because the alternative is too painful, which is to say, well, I mean, in this case of the Soviet Union, by this point, it would have been, you know, almost 30 years. It'd be like, I just, I was wrong for 30 years. <laughs> Can yeah. you imagine saying that about anything? Like, uh, that would hurt. That would hurt. That would hurt so bad. I think that would take a level of bravery and and maybe mental fortitude that I don't even know if I would have. Right? right. I mean, I'm glad that at my age, I've started to question everything in my but life. But see, so that's why I'm saying, like, I think a character like Clover is a lot of the gold in a story like Animal Farm because, again, you're not, this is why narrative is so crucial, right? You're getting people's feelings because we're getting her mind in her own time, which we never get in real life with other people, right? But it's like, that's what moves hearts and minds. It's like the, yeah. the example of a character like Clover or Boxer is exactly why it might be possible to even admit you're wrong, right? It's like, well, George Orwell noticed this about the human condition too. And even though it sucks, maybe I was wrong about this thing, right? Yeah. You know, what would Clover Uh, do? What would Clover do? (laughs) So I don't know. I think that's a, I don't know exactly what I think about that, but it's an important thing is that that sadness around being wrong, but choosing to not accept it and just live with the consequences because it's too internally painful to admit, well, the revolution was a lie. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Or, or the version of it now is a lie compared to what it was. And I mean, it's accentuated when, because throughout the whole book, the anthem of the revolution is Beasts of England. But then it gets outlawed, right? Like the pigs outlaw Beasts of England because by this point, the pigs are getting more and more comfortable with just being bald-facedly about them being in charge as opposed to about being the revolution. And so if they're the status quo, we don't want to remind them of revolutions because no. we're the ones to be revolted against now, right? So I think that that's just such an interesting political thing to pay attention to is like, like the erasure, this is, the, okay, well, we got to talk about this. The erasure of history, good or bad, is a mistake. 
Yes. <laughs> right? Here's the two-step process. It's like, look, I've got no... I, I don't know exactly what I think about taking down Confederate statues, although probably I wouldn't be opposed to it because the Confederacy was built on slavery and racism. And, you know, those are things not worth um, celebrating, venerating or celebrating, yeah. but they're important to remember. Yeah. Right. Like, so we can take down Confederate statues, but we shouldn't forget about the Confederacy yeah. because that's the best way to let it rise again. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. The best way to let, a horrible thing happened again in history is to pretend like it didn't it happen. never happen before, or yeah. or that everyone who was not to our level of purity morally is a confederate yes. let's say yes. right that's a that's an even more dangerous version of it but i think also part of it is that if you erase something important in history for one reason or another that is um not appropriate for our time let's say you don't have to deal with the complexity of that thing, right? So this is a point Douglas Murray made when he was, um, I think it was Madness of Crowds he was researching. Uh, Douglas Murray came across a student at one of the colleges who said that, uh, Immanuel Kant came up between Douglas Murray and the student talking about it. And uh, the student said, well, yeah, I, you know, Kant was a racist, so I don't have, I don't want to, I don't want to read a racist. Right? right. And now this is like a, this struck Douglas Murray is a weird thing. It's like, well, I understand like in 18th century Germany, he probably wrote the word Negro a few times and it wasn't, you know, in our modern years, that, that seems off kilter or right? it doesn't sound right. But then it's like, oh, wait a minute. Now you don't have to deal with Kant. Now you don't have to read him. Now you don't have to think about the complexities of his philosophy because you've discounted him in the first place. That's what the erasure of history does. So you don't have to deal with the complexities of the things that come before us. Well, and I think um, if you, I think this goes back to uh, my kind of my hobby, my hobby horse. If you're a progressive, <laughs> if you actually believe that somehow the inevitable march of history, like my least favorite term ever used, is the wrong side of history. There is no right or wrong side of history. There well, is only the march of events. Do you and do? You- Okay, but do you think that... I, I think there's an interesting conversation to be had there. I, I see Thomas Paine different than I see Thomas Jefferson on yeah, but, the point but, of slavery. And those, and those are interesting things to say, but what about the castration of the Uyghurs in, uh, in China? Like, it, things aren't better for a lot of people. No. They're better for some, but my, my, I think my point is things are not inevitably going to get better. Things are not inevitably oh, going no, to get no, more no. free. No, that's And true. that's what progressivism promises, that we are better now than we were before. We're not. Well, the right or wrong side of history is the wrong heuristic for the present. So I think you can make an intelligible comparison between people in history based on a principle, right? right. So like, I do think Wilberforce... Yeah, but it has nothing it, to do was, with history. No, but it, it has to do with principle. Well, other than the fact that it happened before, and that's just the word we use for. Well, everything right. happened before. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I mean. Like, I think to say the right. This is why I'm, again. This is a problem of language, and I can't accentuate enough the desire to become more precise in your speech is, I think, directly relational to how honest a broker you are in the world. Right. The the desire to be more and more precise, not perfect in your speech, but more precise is indicative of an honest broker who isn't trying to pull the wool over your eyes, but has a genuine feeling about the world. Right. The 
desire to use fuzzy language that you can hide in later that can mean different things doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad actor, but bad actors also hide in that part, (laughs) right? right. So uh, what I'm saying is I think it's important to delineate the different meanings of the right side of history where the right side of a past injustice or justice is William Wilberforce on one side and I don't know, Robert E. Lee on another. Now, I don't think, I don't think we have to say there's no such thing as the right side of history. All we have to say is that I actually mean this kind of literally, <laughs> right? Like I mean this in since this is history, since history is our word for things in the past in terms of an academic study, it does seem to me like Wilberforce was on the right side of an argument that Robert E. Lee was on the wrong side of the argument for, right? Right. Because that- of that, that's the moral principle of slavery, which is moral philosophy slash ethics. Right. Now, in the modern day, I think you're right. I think the hubris to say this is the right side of history and this isn't is just that, right? Like, but you of can't course. tell. You're not going to know. Right. But that's different than saying there isn't like some way of dialectic to figure out, or <laughs> I shouldn't use dialectic in this episode, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, conversation to determine, well, what's a better moral principle based on how we want to live now, right? And I, again, you're right. Like the Karl Popper uses the term historicity as this idea from Plato to Hegel to Marx about like the inevitable march of history. Well, yeah, no, no, that's bullshit. But that doesn't mean there isn't like people better or worse to venerate in history, right? Now, I don't think you're saying that. I'm saying it's a distinction worth making. And maybe that's totally irrelevant, but I don't want in the future those two things to be connected when I think they're distinct. Right. That's all. Right. That's all. So I'm not even disagreeing with you exactly. No, I I think I see what you're saying. Yeah. (laughs) So you're right. Progressive... Ism of like, but I, yeah, I guess all I'm saying about that is, um, it gives you an inha- inherent sense of superiority. Oh, they were wrong back then, not just they, but my parents were well, wrong. Well, but that's my the justification of people in Animal Farm or the animals in Animal Farm who are not totally believing in the shit that's going on, but what can they do about it? So they might as well believe in it, right? Right, <laughs> and and that's why that's exactly why Napoleon and Squealer are dousing and removing anything in the farm that might give the animals a different perspective on what to take about something right like imagine all the animals who say well i wonder maybe that windmill fell not because of snowball maybe it fell because you know we just don't know how to bake windmills uh, <laughs> right as soon as you give options um or what we might say the marketplace of ideas is free uh, yeah that's dangerous yeah right like because there's there's more parsimonious explanations for the windmill falling than a rogue boogeyman snowball running around t- how does one pig tear down a windmill <laughs> anyway right, right. like how right. would that work what are your demarcations yep yep so you're right again what's lost in all of this is well what problems are we trying to solve i like that yeah i think that's a good <laughs> what, distinction what, uh now that we've all puffed our feathers and peacocked and you know brought our big dick energy to you know, our moral fervor, what problems are we trying to solve again? <laughs> yeah. Which is an idea totally lost on Animal Farm. Yeah. Because the problems they're trying to solve are how do the pigs is how do we live a more hedonistic lifestyle for the rest of our days? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And all the while lying. So anyway, not a lot left, I guess, in this. Just all good things are because of Napoleon. So we see in the second, in the third act of the book, we see the transformation of Napoleon as leader to more like Napoleon as deity. Yeah. Right? Like, and in, Napoleon encourages being seen as a deity. Mm-hmm. And this is not in, I mean, this is exactly what happened with Stalin and Mao and in ways that I don't know quite as well, but probably things like Ho Chi Minh or um, Pol Pot or yeah. 
um, the dear leader. I mean, Kim Jong Un. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in modern he day, is right? Considered a dear. Yeah, 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 yeah. Allegedly, um, the grandfather Kim Il Sung. All the birds sang in Korean on the day of his birth. <laughs> so there are also <laughs> these stories right. about the, the genesis. Days, yeah. And, so. Uh, the caprice of Napoleon, he just switches allegiances to Frederick when it suits his needs, yep. right? Even though the principle was... He doesn't even try to be consistent. Yeah. Because he doesn't. He knows that consistency is actually not the reason that he has power. Of course. And actually, this is an idea that Orwell flushes out way more in 1984, where I think I think Oceania is the place where We've always live. been at war with Oceania. Or we've always been in war yeah, with... Yeah, there was just like... There's two other major countries in the world. There's Oceania and the... I can't remember. And they've always been at war with the one and, and peace with the other. And then one day they just switch. Yeah. We've always been at war with the other one and at peace with the other one. And everyone's like, well, wait, what? And it's like, hmm. well, no, you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. War um, is peace, right? Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the sheep because they're always bleeding the slogans. Mm -hmm. So instead of thinking, whenever an animal like Clover or Boxer, not as much, but Benjamin or a dog brings up like, well, what about this? The sheep just bleat, you know, four legs good, two legs bad. (laughs) You know, like this kind of thing. It's like as if that were an argument. Okay, just a couple of things. But I think we should probably, what was your take on Benjamin? What do you think? Because I think Benjamin represents the Orwell type in the world, the the crusty, I like I like person who he's pretty he's pretty stoic. Yeah. Right. He's like I like him. There's not enough about him to really have too much of a comment. He 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 constitutes what, like seven or eight lines in the book, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I think yeah. the description of him is more interesting where he's he's one he seems to be he at never least, laugh. Well, he's the only animal that doesn't get swept up in the propaganda from the very beginning. Yeah. Right? Like he's the only animal that is skeptical of the revolution even while going through it. Right? Like so it's like he's kinda He's, I guess, from a psychological point of view, Benjamin is the animal least internally destroyed by the revolution not being what it yeah because por- he's like portrayed this is just life to be. Yeah. yeah. And I think he's supposed to be like a philosopher of sorts. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Right. And 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 someone who realizes that he can't control the tides of mm-hmm. life and 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 whatever happens externally he can only control his own reaction to it mm-hmm. now his own reaction seems to be quite dour and uh yes but i think the reason why he can be rescued from misanthropy is that he forges a really strong friendship with clover and boxer yeah right even though he realizes that they don't have the same perspective mm-hmm. on the world that he does yeah he realizes that friendship mm-hmm. is his chief joy in life which is why he's particularly miserable when boxer gets taken and away. he can even be i would say he flirts with Rhinus. In well, some yeah, of his yeah. comments about what's That's going true. on, right? That's true. So, and I mean, I don't. I think we've mentioned this before, but for me, the three things that predominantly make life worth living are, in ascending, ascending order of importance, humor, culture, and friendship. And I think Benjamin at least understands the friendship. Part yes, of that. and maybe even part of the humor. There isn't much culture on Animal Farm, which <laughs> no. is another important thing. Is like these zones aren't good for your soul. No. <laughs> right? No. The Soviet Union was bad for people's physical lives, but it was terrible for their soul because there was no art. Yeah. Right? There was well, no inspiration. There was Winnie no... the Pooh is outlawed in China. Exactly. Because the dear leader felt insulted at a comparison. Yeah. So they lose culture mm-hmm. at any given moment when it doesn't serve the purposes of the powerful. Exactly. And I think that is... that's Well, because art is subversive. Of course. Animal Farm... I mean, this is so meta. Like, Animal Farm is one of the most subversive books in the history of literature because it's a fiction. It's an outlawed in the Soviet Union. Of course. (laughs) But 
This is why um, when it was given to Poland during this yeah, time, yeah. everyone was like, how did he know about this? How did he know about how this was? And I think it's just George Orwell had a great sense of human nature. Yeah, like he, just a, a, like a almost a, a super attenuated sense about the way people are, hey? Yeah. But it's, but it's again, beautiful. he must have only known that because he spent time with so many people. And thinking, yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. And then the, uh, what's that French word? Denouai? Denoumi? The end. Oh, <laughs> the, yes, the, yeah. Resolution yeah, the, the resolution of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Defini? Denoumi? I can't remember. It's fini is French for Finnish. I don't know. Oh, Finny? That was just Finn. Finn. Or end. Yeah. Finn. Anyway, when the sheep change it, four legs good, two legs better. Yeah. Uh, and this is the lead into, in, it's impossible to tell the pigs from the men. I think the last like really substant- substantive thing to talk about here is the complete inversion or annihilation of the idea in the first place, which is the essence of doublethink, yeah. right? So throughout the novel, or, sorry, the novella, um, the slogan was four, four legs, legs good, good two, two legs, legs bad. bad, right? Now it's four legs good, two legs better. Complete inversion. So it yeah. went from bad to better than the thing that was good. <laughs> yeah. So this is a complete inversion. And this is like, this is a grand encapsulation of all the things we've talked about in this book. Like the grand and audacious lie is so important to a tyrannical ideology because you have to basically abandon every critical facility to accept it which is the whole point it uses language in whatever way it wants well two legs better than four legs in what sense right like the word better this is why i get frustrated when people say well you think you're better you think you're better than that person it's like now i know kind of what you mean but also better is a word that needs an external referent so better at swimming (laughs) better at so i guess really i think when that question is being asked is do you think your value is greater Yes, but it, but it's it's not precise enough again for someone no. like me, right? No, I no. need I need precision in my questions. Right, right. And um, there's just so much imprecision in the slogan four legs good, two legs better." Yeah. Right. Well, I even referenced that earlier when the birds are like, "Well, we only have two legs, so we have yeah. our wings." And then Snowball's like, "Yeah, but your wings are for um, manipulation." So <laughs> really, you're actually have yeah. And the birds don't understand what that means, <laughs> but they accept Snowball's take yeah. on it, right? <laughs> And so I think the danger, I don't even want to say the danger, the, um, just the thing to be vigilant against is the things that make you have to admit against something you knew was true yesterday, (laughs) right? Right. It can be as recent as yesterday, especially in our world now. That's what Animal Farm is. It's like the, obviously 1984 has way more on right think, double think, double speak, but he, it's referenced here with the two legs, four legs good, two legs better, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why the abandonment of your own critical thinking is when the party wins totally, right? Yeah. So that ending, the pigs becoming like the men, the hedonistic life of the pigs, just I can't believe we've had as much history as we've had of ideological regimes that you could still hear things like, well, you know, communism is still good. It's just Soviet Union bastardized it. It didn't, yeah. wasn't real. It's like, no, no, no. Human nature is deeper than these ideologies. And this is why I like, I just, I'm blown away by, again, someone like James Madison, 
Like James Madison paid attention to the things Marx didn't in his analysis, which is why he talked about balance of power and checks and balances in the Federalist Papers, right? So anyway, what are your thoughts on all that? Hmm. Well, I think when we can convince people to violate their own beliefs, you control them completely. Mm -hmm. And that's fairly easy to do with weak people. Mm -hmm. And then the at the end, I think the ending is so profound and scary because it, it just goes to show that really, I think what we said from the beginning, the battle isn't between ideas. Mm-hmm. Like, we're told so often and so loudly, and particularly, I would say, people of a certain class are are told that there's this great battle between left and right mm-hmm. or between religion and atheism. And all of that is simply to distract from the reality, which is that there are some who benefit from the system more than others, mm-hmm. a lot more. And I've said this before, and I I just want to say it again. The people who are making us fight one another are the enemy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they're making us fight one another because they gain power and influence from us fighting one another. Right. Why why did the medieval kings go to war? Mm -hmm. To gain land, Mm -hmm. wealth, prestige. It had nothing to do with the well-being of their population. Yeah, of course. And now why do the king, I mean, there's that great quote from uh, Fargo, you know, America still has kings, we just don't call them that. We still have leaders who want power and who wield power and who use power for their own personal benefit. Right. We just don't call them that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I think one of the greatest awakenings to an awareness of reality as opposed to perhaps the stories we're told is when you recognize that there is no real difference between people who want power. Mm-hmm. They're all the same. Yeah. 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 For people who want power for power's sake. Yeah. And not even, and being aware of the fact that people will want power for its own sake, no matter what. Yes. <laughs> all, those people are always going to be yeah. there. So at one level, our enemy are the wolves, but at another level, there's also enemies of people who benefit from wolves running things. Yes. Right? Who themselves might not be wolves, at least directly. So, like, I wouldn't call Napoleon or Squealer wolves exactly, although they're, like, wolf-adjacent, maybe. Mm-hmm. There's different categories. Anyway, that's not that important. But I, the heart of what you're saying is still there and yeah. important. And... um once you can get past the real realization that you've been duped, that's a really hard pill to swallow, mm-hmm. right? That this passionate moral crusade that you've been on mm-hmm. is just other people using you to gain power. Mm-hmm. Once you can get past the kind of shame, mm-hmm. there's a whole vista of understanding available, I think. Yeah, and so I would say, like in closing, it can seem kind of hopeless, if you're an animal on Animal Farm. Yeah. But see, here's the thing. There was a moment in time before Napoleon had all the dogs at his disposal where um, critical thinking could have arisen, right? Let's say, before it would have been snuffed out and then 
it's gone until the entire farm is destroyed and something new grows there, right? But what's needed for that is a commitment to precision of language, I would say. That's probably the most important thing because if you can, if you can, the, the whole point of precision of language is that you make it really easy for yourself to be incorrect, right? Like if you commit yourself to very specific things that you say you'll do, and then they don't happen, you can be held to that, right? Right. right. So if you say, there's a big difference between saying, we're going to make Animal Farm great. Yes. <laughs> we're going to make Animal Farm great again. Yeah. <laughs> there's a big difference to that in saying, in 20 days, we will build a windmill that doesn't fall down and will f- give everyone power sp- and power hot water and cold water. And cold water. And if that doesn't happen, you can choose a different leader than me. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right? That pr- level of precision and detail holds you to accountability and a responsibility that you can either live up to or not, right? Whereas to say, we're going to make Animal Farm great again, well, yeah. there's no way to be wrong about that. There's no, no falsifiability. So I would say precision of language. Another one is um, non-erasure of history and keeping the arts alive, which include literature and comedy and filmmaking and storytelling because these are the things that give us better ways to think about difficult things right yeah it's one thing to live it's another thing to have a reason to live Mm -hmm. and i would say also just in reference to what i talked about at the very beginning is that i consider these things to be liberal priorities as well right (laughs) not just conservative (laughs) ones i think no i think you're right (laughs) but i think when you say liberal you're talking about something that isn't ideological anymore it's philosophic well that's why i would hope to precisely make the distinction there we go (laughs) and then also just in i I, again probably most of you have heard of animal farm before if you haven't read it george orwell he repays 10 times the investment yeah if you invest i don't know how many hours it takes i would so recommend reading especially road to wigan pier because he's got an entire chapter on there that blows my mind because it's the first time i really read about the idea of that the devotees of Marx and socialism don't love the poor. They just hate the rich. Yeah. Right. Right. The pigs of animal farm. They don't like the animals. They just hate Jones. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And in a sense, it's because they hate him because they want to be it and they can't be. So, I mean, Orwell has these hilarious little quips about like all the, all the latte drinking, fruit juice drinking socialists who've never even come close to a coal mine in their lives before and yet are the great heroes of these coal miners. And, you know, those kind of people are probably who we would call the woke academics now, Yeah, right? And that's just useful to remember that the great socialist George Orwell called these people out, you know, the great, I don't know, he's got so much great writing and it's worth just engaging and indulging in him because to me he's the luminary of the 20th century right yeah, yeah. if we betray orwell we are fucked <laughs> it's true because he's the last best defense against mental tyranny in a political sense i can't think of someone who's done and better than him i i think we're headed down that road i think we're we're getting close to some very dangerous times if you look at the world around us totalitarianism is winning right now and if, if you don't want totalitarianism to win, then it's your job. Well, then we have, a, we have a great opportunity here to actually learn from the 20th century. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Or we're going back. Yeah. Well, 
who knows what did they say uh was it twain history doesn't repeat but it rhymes, but it rhymes. Yeah. yeah so i mean there's a lot of things that happen in the 20th century i do not want to hear the rhymes of because <laughs> some the rhyme might be worse than the original yeah well again this is a hard not a hard book it's an easy book hard to talk about because it's controversial issues but i hope our earnestness and sincerity and and hope for good in the world can come through even some chastising comments throughout it all because i can speak i'm pretty sure for both of us that we just really want to see the world improve yes that that i can't uh, i can't think of uh, something i want more than that like uh, you know that nine-year-old neighbor of mine who's from a biracial family to have the best possible life and getting all the opportunities that in many other centuries would not have been afforded to you know a girl or someone with dark skin i can't imagine anything i want more than for her to have just as good of a life as i've had yeah you know and that's why we talk about these kind of things exactly (laughs) so because the danger is actually that because that's the problem we're trying to solve yeah that's the actual problem we're trying to solve Anyway, this has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. My name is David Parker. Happy Canada Day. I made a force be with you. 